0: So when people ask me about my story, they say, don't you wish you had a normal life? Don't you wish you had parents and grew up in the middle class? I'm like, you know, that point in my life could have saved my life. And so most people don't get that. I'm like, having all of that happen for me could have saved my life because had I continued doing what I was doing, hanging out with the people I was hanging out with, I probably would have continued down that road and could have wound up dead or in jail anyway. The whole concept for MOVE is am. Make a difference. Oh, to offer up your time, talent, and gifts. And B, there's victory in the small things. And E, to encourage
1: others. And so, I started to move. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining the Move Podcast. I'm your host Scotty Carlisle, and today we have a guest that he's got quite the past. And that being said, he's also got quite the future. Right now, he's devoted his time to helping people in a lot of different situations and going through their struggles and really trying to find themselves. And be real. Don't be fake. And, you know, today there's a lot of problems with self-image and just image altogether. And so I want to introduce one of my personal friends – that we've known each other for a while now in different contexts. And without further ado, Chris, Chris Roush, Christopher. I like to call you Chris because it's faster and easier for me to say. But your name's Christopher, so I, I can appreciate that, too.
0: Either one. Um, either one. It's honestly Chris, Christopher. It's just, uh, yeah, mister Kickass.
1: Kick-Ass. <laughs> hey, even better. No, better. no, 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 no.
0: <laughs> I have a story about that now. So, so could you introduce yourself, Chris? Absolutely. I am Christopher Roush. I am known as the No Excuses Coach, and I love helping people overcome their self-created crap without the self-help fluffy bullshit.
1: (laughs) There's my introduction. So what do you mean by self-help fluffy bullshit? That is a very interesting question,
0: Scott. I've been on a journey for the last three or four years, and I could probably almost say that I need to change that line, that tagline, because the self-help fluffy bullshit for me before used to be the yoga, the meditation, the breath work we were just talking about. And... Kind of like, oh, if you, want to, if you want to achieve something, you have to visualize it in your mind and sit on Indian style and do all that other stuff. Like when The Secret came out, I was like, oh, if you just wish for it, it happens. Well, for me, that pissed me off. It was like, no, no, if you just wish for something, it's not going to happen. You have to actually get off your butt and go do it. So, But now... Seeing the self-help fluffy bullshit and seeing how yoga, meditation and all those different different aspects that I was not aware of or not educated on, they really do impact your life. So um, now I think the fluffy bullshit are the people in the personal development industry who are liars and cheats and scams that are out there saying they want to help people, but they all they care about is how much money they can make from an audience. And so that's the fluffy bullshit that I want to get away from. And that's why I'm just being me.
1: Uh, OK, so, you know, it. I have seen I don't know how long that you've been, that you've been pushing this, but maybe a couple of years or, and I've seen a lot of personal growth just from your Facebook posts and the conversations that you've had and what, where you're going. So I really think that you're onto something and I'm really happy that you took the time to come here to talk to me. And, and what I wanted to do with that is kind of uncover your story sure. of where you came from, and why it is you do what you do. Why do you give a shit? Why do you care about helping others? What what trials and tribulations have you been through to give you the perspective that you have?
0: How much time you got? <laughs> trials
1: and tribulations. Enough. Tri- Enough. Trials and tribulations.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many different places to start. I mean, I look at, um, I was just telling somebody the other day, they asked me, when was a pivotal point in your life where you had to really change how you thought about yourself? And it was back in somewhere 1985, 86, 87. I'm bad at dates. I was, on the, I was about 17, 16, 17 years old. And I came walking in. We were staying at this uh, broken down uh, motel. And um, I came walking in and the guy said, hey, you want to buy a carton of cigarettes? And I'm like, he said, oh, you want to buy a carton of cigarettes for five bucks? And I said, what you got? And he whips out a, a carton of marble reds. And I said, oh, man, I don't smoke those. I smoke Cool's. And He was a black guy. He's like, what do you mean you don't smoke marble reds? All you white people smoke marble reds. And I was like, no, I actually smoke Cools. I actually smoke menthols. And they're, Oh, really? Are you making fun of me because I'm black? I said, I don't care what color you are. I grew up in Inglewood where I was the only white kid on my street. I don't care what the color of skin is. I care about the fucking cigarettes and I don't smoke those. <laughs> 30 seconds later, I had a gun to my head. 30 seconds later, I had cold steel pressed to my forehead thinking I was joking him, thinking I was punking him, thinking I was making fun of him because he was black and stereotypically at that point, I don't know if this is still true today, but stereotypically at that point, blacks smoked menthols and us tough white guys smoked Marlboros or Winston's or Salem's or some bullshit like that, whatever the commercial said. And I said, dude, and I went to go, that's what it was. I went to go reach for my back pocket because my cigarettes were in my back pocket. I went to go reach and that's when I literally went like this. I said, dude, I'll show you. And I went like this and then it was like this and I was like, oh, we have a conversation shift here. You seem to really want me to buy your cigarettes. <laughs> um, and it was right yeah. out in the in the motel. This is how, this is. I mean, this place shouldn't even have been allowed to run. This how bad this place was. And then fortunately, because I'm a good person, even at the age of 16, 17 years old, right around then, um, this other guy, my friend Keith came walking out and he's a black guy. He's like, no, 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 no. Him and his moms are cool. Him and his moms are cool. And and I, left, I literally sit there and he still had the thing to my head. And I said, if you're going to pull the fucking trigger, pull it. And at that point in my life, I had already tried committing suicide twice. Unfortunately, I sucked at it. I was desperate. I didn't give a shit. I'm like, if this is what you're going to do, then do it. And at that point, I was so fed up with doing what everybody else wanted me to do and so tired of having to explain myself and so tired of being misunderstood. I didn't care anymore. That was my breaking point. I was like, pull the trigger. And I fully expected to hear a click and that was going to be it. And then unfortunately, he's like, man. And I pulled the cigarettes out. I'm like, see? They said, no, if you don't mind me, this is a little stressful. I'm going to have a cigarette. (laughs) And I wound up, I wound up, you know, befriending him and everything. But at that point in my life, I realized that everything I had been through and experienced up until that point really was a pivotal point for me to sit there and say, okay, listen, you're going to get out of the situation in one of a couple of ways, in a pine box, in jail, or you're going to have to make the determination that you are worth more than the situation you're in and have to bust your ass to get out of that and make some really, really, really hard decisions. Um, and so I made those decisions and that's really what started me to be on the path that I'm on today.
1: So leading up to that point, you said you almost committed suicide or you tried to commit suicide a couple of times and you sucked at it. What about your life or what about the the problems that you were having compelled you to try to commit suicide? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's step back to, let's see, the the winter
0: of... 69, February 69, when I was born.
1: Long, long, time long, long time ago,
0: ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, back when the cell phones didn't exist, if you could believe that. No, um, yeah, back in 69, I was born in Inglewood to a mother with various psych- psychological disorders, uh, chemical dependencies, uh, an affiliation for the men, if you know what I mean. So I was born into a family of a sister that was uh, from another dad. My biological father was nowhere to be seen. He was actually, I found out later, married and had a family of his own hence the promiscuousness. So in those first five years of my life were absolutely just chaotic. And I, I, my memory started around four or five. And at that point, I just remember being on buses in Los Angeles. I remember I remember not being a kid. I remember not playing. I remember you know always having to go somewhere with my mom or being left with my sister. And it wasn't until the fact that in that neighborhood, I started getting picked on because when I would go out and ride my big wheel, I was the only white kid in a black neighborhood. So they would pick on me. And I didn't understand. I'm like, you know, when we're kids, we don't really see that. But I can see that the the, the nature of maybe the parents, they saw that white people were bad because of everything that was going on. So I understand that. So fortunately, we were able to get out of that situation. My mom moved us to Anaheim in Orange County. And then I thought I was going to have a, a, an average life. My mom, had, I met a guy and um, he had a son. So we we're moving to Orange County. We we're going to have a house. And I thought, oh, my life is finally going to be great. I'm going to finally have a, a family and I was going to start school. Uh, Because I started school in Inglewood and it wasn't a good thing. I was pulled out of school within the second day because it was just not right for a white kid to be in that many. It was just wasn't cool. Um, But what's what's funny is the story changes down the road. Um, So when I got there, that's when the physical abuse, that's when that's when the physical abuse started. That's when I saw my mom's boyfriend beating her, her beating him. And that's when I started getting the physical beatings. My sister started getting the physical beatings. She left at the age of 16 and decided to go live with her dad because her dad was well off and her dad was normal. Uh, this, is, this, this lends itself into the point of the story later. Um, so everything was fine. And she just said, I can't take mom anymore. I had to raise you when I was seven years old and blah, 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 victim, victim, victim. And then she bolted. After her husband bolted, they wound up getting married. So that was just me and my mom. And uh, at the age of 13, after she spent the last $5,000 she had on a cat that was dying of leukemia, we lost our house. So literally at the age of 13, halfway through the seventh grade, I had to drop out and uh, leave that house. And through that journey uh, of being homeless for the next four years, part of that journey involved being at that motel. It involves sleeping in the car with eighteen cats and two dogs. That is no lie. My mom was a cat person. She had over thirty cats and four dogs in the house. But the sheriff was gonna show up at six o'clock that night if we weren't out and that's as many cats as she could get out of the house into the station wagon before the cops showed up. Because she was not going to give up the cats. She was not she we could have my my, my grandfather offered to get us a house, but he the, the contingency was that you weren't gonna have thirty cats and four dogs. She stood her ground and says, no, this is what we're gonna do. This is what I'm about And for the next four years, we went on that homeless journey in the car and various motels. Uh, She was raped one time when I was 14 or 15, had to deal with that. She actually uh, went to court and fought the guy. And um, ultimately, he got off later on. He actually raped somebody else and was convicted of attempted murder. Uh, Peter, I can't remember his name now. Um, So all throughout that battle, throughout all those times of digging in trash cans um, seeing my mom drinking the, the hierarchy in the family was the cats got taken care of the dogs got taken care of mom got cigarettes uh, and then there was food so during those times I could still look at a, box, a sleeve of crackers and think wow that's dinner because it was so cheap and so I would just eat crackers and drink water and get filled up because that's was the hierarchy so and through all of that um, lost my identity lost who I was obviously a teenager going through hormone changes uh, really didn't fit in with anybody and up until that point also, in addition to the physical abuse at the house, I was bullied both on my block and at school. Even in elementary school, I was bullied. I was picked on. There was a situation one time where I really wanted to fit in. And the kids uh, at the, play, the elementary playground had said, hey, we're going to play baseball. And so I, I was scared to go stand in the group of guys because they were all you know, like boys, boys. And I said, oh, I want to play too. I still remember this. And they're like, what position do you play? And I said, I play batter. Hmm. I said, I play batter. Because I'd watched baseball, but I really didn't understand it because I didn't have a dad that would teach me about it. And the oh, kids man. erupted in laughter. I felt bad. Nobody picked me for their team. And I was just like, okay, another outsider. So it all culminated um, there at the motel one night where I was just frustrated. My mom was playing pseudo-informant to the Anaheim Police Department about a drug dealer that was in the motel. And then she was also working for said drug dealer on the side. My mom, like I said, very psychological disorders. Meanwhile, the kid... Is working at Carl's Jr., working tele, two telemarketing jobs, or working at a temp agency, working at Carl's Jr., or working three temp jobs, or working—yeah, um, it was just crazy. I was just busting my ass, and she wasn't doing anything. And ultimately, one night, I was so mad, I drank—I wasn't really drinking at that time—I drank, I drank, and I smoked a bunch of pot. And I got in her station wagon that she loved so much, and I decided I was going to go run that car and myself into a brick wall and go as fast as I could and see what happens. And God, universe, whatever you want to call it, I got on the freeway, and I just started hauling ass. I was on the tw- I was on the five freeway. I went down the five freeway. I got off. I went up on the twenty-two freeway, drunk and high, and not supposed to be driving a five-thousand-pound vehicle with the intention of finding a finding a solid surface where I could just run right into. And of course, if you're on a freeway, you're not going to find any walls. I wasn't that smart. So I, I drove the 22 freeway to the, to the 405 freeway to the 605 freeway, back to the 5 freeway and back. And ultimately through that, that point, I sobered up a little bit and was like, do I really want to do this? You know, I didn't know anything. I just knew people had to kill themselves and they were done with their pain. They were done with their anger. They were done with everything else. I'm like, if I just do this, that's going to teach her a lesson. Then maybe she'd finally go, oh, shit, I forgot. I love. I'm supposed to love my son. I'm supposed to take care of my son. Wound up driving back to the motel. She didn't even know I was gone. Went back up to the room, went to sleep, woke up the next day. And uh, another time I tried to take a bunch of Advil. I took like half a bottle of Advil, probably 20 of them or something like that. Didn't know that it wouldn't do anything, but I thought, well, if you're supposed to take one, then 20 will kill me. I just didn't have a headache for another 15 years. It was great. Um, So fortunately, like I said, I sucked at it. And, um, all of that led up to that moment where I finally had to make that decision, which was one of the toughest decisions I had to make, but we all have to make tough decisions in our life to get us where we want to go and not where we've, uh, always been.
1: So what was the process or how did it look as you separated yourself from your mom? Because you were still Mm -hmm. a young person, right? You were still, I mean, it's not like you, so I guess you did have a job, right? So what, at what age and then how did it work for you to finally take that step away from that environment? Uh, I
0: was 17 years old and it was literally probably a couple of weeks after that incident with the gun. And my mom was yelling at me and I part time I stayed in somebody else's room. They had he, her room only had one one bed. And that's another story. And then this other guy that I kind of took care of, he had muscular dystrophy. So he had an extra bed. So because I took care of him, I got to sleep in the other bed. And then all of a sudden, he started getting weirded out and started having people over. So it was just like I had nowhere to go. I didn't fit in anywhere. I really couldn't stay in the room anymore. And and then being um, a buddy of mine that lived in the motel I became friends with, we both were working a telemarketing job, which was out of a, um, a person's apartment in Huntington Beach, which sounds kind of creepy. We're telemarketing out of somebody's apartment. <laughs> what kind of telemarketing are you doing there, right? Chris? Uh, We were actually doing, we were setting roofing contractor appointments. He had one bedroom all set aside for a little office, a little makeshift call center. And uh, we made decent money at it. If we got got a roofing contractor appointment, that's all we needed. We got like 300 bucks. And so we were just calling businesses all day long, setting these appointments. As long as he could show up to the appointment, then we got 300 bucks. And we show up to work one day. And he's like, and remember his name is Norman Dodd. He was a, he was a nice gentleman. He was a weird looking gentleman, but he was nice. Retrospect, it Probably wasn't the smartest thing for a 17 year old boy to be going to a guy's apartment that looked like that, but he wound up being a really nice guy. And, uh, we get, we go to work one day and, uh, he's like, oh boys. And, uh, I'm like, Hey, what's going on, Norm? And he's like, well, I got some bad news and I got some good news. And I look at him flat in the face. I said, I've had enough bad news to last a lifetime. I said, really bad news. What kind of bad news could you have about this? And he said, well, let me tell you the good news. And I was like, all right, tell us the good news. He says, well, um, and this, is, this is the funny part. Now I actually think about it. I'm going to tell you the good news. I'm going to leave you my apartment. I'm going to leave you my apartment with the, da- the down payment, the deposit, you know, first and last and all that other stuff, because he knew Robert and I were trying to get out of that place. He knew where we lived. He knew our story. Oh, wow. Um, so he's like, he's like, I'm like, well, wait a minute. How would you? Uh, he goes, yeah, now the bad news. He goes, I'm moving the operations back to Texas. He was from Texas. We're like, wait, wait, what just happened? We just lost our jobs and gained an apartment. Really? What? And it was a really nice apartment. It's Huntington Beach, Beach and Endger. Beautiful. I mean, workout facility. I mean, to me, living in that motel, which literally was finally condemned and the five freeway actually drives over it right now. To, to even think that I could live in this nice of a place was No. You know, then we we both looked at each other like giddy little schoolgirls like, oh, my God, we can do this. We can do this. We get somebody to we can get your brother. We could get somebody else. We could do it. it was like the rent was like eight hundred fifty bucks, which is on. Her, I imagine that place is probably like three thousand dollars a month by now.
1: My goodness.
0: Yeah. We're like and then I was like, oh, yeah, I got a mom back there. And so when I was driving home, we were driving home. I was sitting there thinking I'm like, you know what? This is a pretty amazing experience. This is a, pr- a pretty amazing opportunity. At that point, I didn't realize that there's certain junctures in your life that you get a chance to, to like break out of the, the, the situation you're in. There are signs and things that show up in, a, in our lives that we can either ignore or go after. And this was a sign. This was a dead sign. It was like, here's your spot. All you have to do is pay 850 bucks a month. We could do that with four people. And so thinking about it, I'm like, okay, how am I going to tell my mom about this? You know, maybe she'll let me, maybe I, maybe I could do a part-time. I was just trying to figure out every possible way I could still do it and kind of inch my way out of the situation, make it softer. Right. And so, um, I think it was a day or so later because I was petrified to tell my mom and I finally just got, she said something, she yelled at me and I said, well, listen, I said, I think I'm going to be going. And she's like, you're not. I'm like, what? I said, yeah, I said, I'm thinking, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of done with this. I said, actually, Robert and I got offered to, to take over the apartment in Huntington Beach. And, um, you know, what do you think about that? And she goes, you want to know what I think about that? And, for, and I thought maybe, just maybe she was going to say, you know, what? I fucked you up enough. I've put you through so much stuff in your life that, that I have screwed you up so bad that you should go do this. I actually really thought that. I thought she's crazy enough just to go, you know what? You have my blessing. And, but no, 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 She nah. she she cumulatively cumulatively called me every name in the book that she had ever called me with heightened anger. And um, yeah. And then then I went when I went to go leave. I was like, you know, what? I'm just gonna leave right now. She called the cops and tried to have me arrested for stealing for taking my oh. own car. She, I heard her on the phone. She goes, my son stealing my car. And I'm like. It's actually my girlfriend's parents car. Oh God, God. But they, they, <laughs> oh, they love God. me. Right. So yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty insane. And, and, and God is my witness. I wound up going back there every single night to help her. I wound up giving her money. Um, it was crazy. Asked my girlfriend who was, who, who became my first wife. She, I forget about this stuff. And every once in a while we'll chat and she goes, do you remember those days? I'm like, no, not really. Cause I just, at those, that point I was just from like 17 until 30, I was just a beast about accomplishing things and just taking advantage of every opportunity I had. I went from being like, huh, what what do I do now? Oh, can I do this? To, no, I've got to take responsibility and control of my life. Otherwise, I'm going to wind up dead or in jail or a drug addict or an alcoholic or something like that. Um, and um, yeah, she wound up getting stronger progressively because... Uh, you have to codependency I didn't know anything about codependency I didn't realize that as long as he's doing everything I can go off and play I spy and inform it to the cops and all this other stuff I don't have to get a job. I could just sweep the grounds and get, you know, 20 bucks off the rent every week the week rent Um, but yeah, that was the breakout moment for me to do that. She got stronger I got stronger and then the story changed from there for a while and then the story got
1: dark again And yeah, it's been a, it's been a crazy journey. What does it look like right now? How are you do you have a relationship with her? Do you talk to her uh, in spirit? Oh, she passed? Yeah, she
0: passed, uh, let me see, 2021. You oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, actually, almost 10 years ago. It was 2011. It's crazy how fast that time went. And I was there and I held her hand, you know, through everything we went through. I wound up, you know, once once I left the motel, once I distanced myself from her, I was always there with her and helping her. Um, but progressively, I started getting around the right people. And one of those people was my girlfriend. And, and at the point where um, our relationship started getting serious, she's like, oh, my parents want to meet you. And at that time, I had long hair, like hair on my face, beard, smoked cigarettes, swore like crazy. I had less of a filter than I have now um, because I was a lot like my mom because I had spent 17 years of my life seeing as that, okay, that's your quote unquote role model. But I knew that wasn't my role model. And so once I met her parents, that introduced me to a whole new world of, oh, wow, I'm I'm different. I'm different because I had been so kind of secluded in my life that I didn't see. I mean, I knew people were rich and everything, but I went over to their to their house for the first time on acid, by the way. But that's another story. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a little it was <laughs> a day, it was the day after. But anyways, um, and I walk into their house and I was just like, you know, like a model home. Everything was in its place. Everything was clean. There wasn't cats running around. It smelled nice. And I'd been in nice homes before, but I was like everything I'd been through for the last four or five years. The things I had to endure, you know, going to the bathroom in a bucket in somebody's garage for a while while I slept in their van in their driveway. I've been, I mean, the story is deep. I'm (laughs) writing that book right now. I love it. It's a pain in the butt to write that book because you have to go back and revisit everything in detail. And I'm kind of like, the past is the past. Let's get on with it. So now I have to go back and open up those boxes and kind of go, okay. And I'm doing that in the book part from a couple of different perspectives. But anyway, um, I met this guy. I was scared shitless. Like he's gonna take one look at me and go, "Get away from my daughter." She was like higher upper middle class, popular, went to high, was in high school at the time. You know, had all the surfer clean cut friends. I mean, totally
1: um, um, valley girl. Did you ever see Valley Girl? Nick Cage. I I'm sure I have, but I'm I suck with movies. So yeah, so
0: do, so do I. So do I, <laughs> But Nick Cage was on the wrong side of the cat tracks. He was the punk rocker, and she was the you know the valley girl and everything. Um, but he wound up looking in me and not at me. He wound go. up looking in me and not at me. And he started mentoring me. He was like, you know, I start, and I didn't want to tell him my story. I'm like, I don't want to tell your parents what what I've been through in the last four years. Are you crazy? What? So no, talk to my dad. Talk to my dad. He's cool. And so I just started talking to him, telling him about what was up. And um, he just started mentoring. me. He's like, have you ever thought about going back to school? And at that point, I was probably 18, you know, still smoking cigarettes. And I'm like, you you, you want me to go back to school? You you. You don't know the real world, dude. You don't know the real world. (laughs) Uh -uh. No. When I went to continuation, well, so he tells me to go to get my GED. I'm like, what the heck's a GED? He goes, general equivalency diploma. I'm like, what is that? I said, I'm not going to go back to school. There's no way. And what's funny is in the seventh grade, this is another part of the story. Up until the seventh grade, I was bullied because I was a small kid. But as I started becoming a teenager, I started getting bigger. And then all of a sudden I went from being bullied to being the bully. Right. Yeah, so I started kicking people's ass in at, at junior high school. So I started smoking pot, skipping, school, skipping classes. So when people ask me about my story, they say, don't you wish you had a normal life? Don't you wish you had parents and grew up in the middle class? I'm like, you know, that point in my life could have saved my life. And so most people don't get that. I'm like, having all of that happen for me could have saved my life because had she had the rent, had she found another boyfriend, had I continued doing what I was doing, hanging out with the people I was hanging out with, I probably would have continued down that road and could have wound up dead or in jail anyway, or a drug addict. So I look at it. This was like a hard shock. This was a hard stop. Like, okay, listen, here's your life. You think your life's fucked up now. Ladies and gentlemen, wait, there's more. You just signed up for the bonus package. You're going to live in the backseat of a 1969 station wagon with 18 cats and two dogs. Yes, you scored the bonus points. Um, And there's so many stories within that. But yes, I wound up getting my GED because I was like, okay, if I want to keep dating this nice girl, I better do what this guy says. So I went to Wintersburg Continuation School in Huntington Beach, and I went in there, and I'm like, "Uh, GED? Yeah, you're in the right place. Okay. Okay, where'd you go to school at? Brooker's Junior High. Okay, we're going to have to send for your transcripts. And I'm thinking, they're going to come back and go, yeah, you need to go back to school. You need to go. (laughs) Like, you missed Because I wasn't good at school anyway. So I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a joke. And I already set myself. And I think that's where I started changing my expectations about things. Like, not being, oh, I'm going to go back to school. I was like, yeah, right. And sure enough, they came back and they said, well, you actually really tested well, and I think I needed to make up history or something else. It was like two categories or two classes, and I think I did it for three months. So I, went, I got kicked out. I got kicked off the grounds of continuation school because I was smoking. That's what I was going to tell you before. So I was like, you really want me to go back to school? Yeah, it was funny. They, they told me I had to leave because I was smoking on the grounds waiting for the class to start. And the guy comes over and goes, you can't be on the ground smoking. And I said, well, I, I am <laughs> like, I am I smoke that's how I was I was like totally unfiltered he's like okay well you have to leave the grounds to smoke your cigarette so literally while I was watching me I walked to the edge of the grounds put my put my toes right at the edge of the grass I went
1: <sighs> <laughs> I blew my smoke straight like exactly little shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: but no I mean in that that was my first awakening that I wasn't stupid because I've been told I was stupid all my life I was told to be seen and not heard I was told to shut up Chris and just do what I tell you um, so many times I thought that was my name that I'm stupid. And so once I did that, I was like, Hmm, maybe I'm not that stupid. And so I went back and I showed bill the, Hey, I did it. You happy? you proud. Now I'm going to go back and get your daughter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's like, no, Chris thought about college, my like, college, dude. I work two jobs right now. I live with four guys in a two bedroom apartment. What really? Yeah, yeah. You could just take one call. You know, go to Golden West. You know, go to the community college. Just take one class. I'm like, huh. Went back and told my, my friends. I'm like, I might be going to college. <laughs> <laughs> really, uh-huh. you good, Mr. Smarty Pants? Oh, you're gonna go be better than all the rest of us? I was like, well, that's weird. When you tell your friends something, don't your friends supposed to be kind of happy for you? Yeah. I remember that vividly. I'm like, huh I said, well, you know, and I kind of joked around. I'm like, well, if I want to keep dating this girl, I got, I'm gonna do what this guy says because he, he has a nice house. He's He's happy. He's got money. He's
1: somebody you can learn from.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe this is the route. Maybe what we're doing over here, jacking each other off is, you know, not literally please, (laughs) but you know, over here is, (laughs) I just got a visual. (laughs) I'm a visual person. I was like, no, that was a bad thing to say. Damn it.
1: Imagination. Stop it. (laughs) Yes.
0: No. Um, so I wound up going back to those guys and saying, Hey, listen, I'm going to do this. And, and all of a sudden I was on the outside and for those, I want to say it was a year and a half. Literally, um, I finally started finding a tribe. I finally started finding a groove. It was heavy metal. It was the height of 80s, glam metal, Motley Crue, Poison, Bon Jovi. My hair was long, hung around with all these people. I was accepted. I finally fit in somewhere. I had a family. And for them to all of a sudden start kicking me out of that family because I wanted to better myself, I didn't understand. I'm like, does everybody just want to be miserable and, and screwed up in life? Is this what this world's all about? This guy seems to have it figured out. Maybe I should listen to him more. And so I started listening to Bill Moore and everybody else less. And so I went to school and I remember it. I walked up to the administration's uh, office at Golden West Community College and I walked in the door and I was scared to death that I was at college. Like literally, they're going to go, really? Uh, No, you run along right now. You're an idiot. (laughs) And I said, hi, um, I'm here to register for school. And she says, okay, let's get things started. And we went through the catalog. What do you want to do? And I'm like, I think business. And so my first class was an interpersonal communications class. And I thank the universe, God, everybody, for that being my first class, because I learned so much about people, the communication process, uh, listening, uh, listening versus hearing, speaking versus talking, choosing your words carefully. But most importantly, I learned how to listen and paraphrase, like seek to understand, to make sure that we really understand the communication message, because we're not really taught that. And so it was an amazing class, and it really set me on a path for communicating, listening, and understanding people because I'd always been fascinated by people and with Bill and everything else, I was fascinated by this new direction in my life. So, and as I started doing more of that, of course, my friends, you know, stopped being my friends. I stopped, um, the last thing, last crazy thing I did was, uh, an eight ball of Coke with a bunch of my friends and my girlfriend at the time, the same person. Um, I had my own bedroom and they slept two in one bedroom and then one guy slept on the couch and that's how we were able to make it. So I had my own Casita there with my own little mini fridge and a lot of their stuff. And I came home from work one day and there was of all things toothpaste in my keyhole. So I'm like, you really going to stop me from getting into my room with toothpaste. Yeah. Cause I went like this. I'm like, it was still wet or whatever. I'm like, I don't get it. Yeah. Well, they were trying to prevent me from getting in my room, but they were stupid. <laughs> so, so literally, this is, this is the truth. So this is the truth. So one door was right here and the other door was right here. It was like a little hallway and then there was a bathroom. So my they tried to attempt me to not for, not, for me not getting in my room. So I literally, in one fell swoop, the other door was closed. Robert's door was closed. I literally busted it off the hinges, kicked the thing wide open, and like, really? Which one of you guys wants to go? <laughs> really? Which, which one of you guys wants to lose your life today? What is, what bullshit? I'm just trying to better myself. I'm not doing drugs anymore. I'm, 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 I'm like really trying to get better. And you guys are being dicks about it. So at that point, um, and, and that was the other thing is that that night when we were doing the eight ball, I thought everybody did drugs. Because everybody we're hanging out with did drugs. And then all of a sudden, Tammy comes in the room. She's like, I don't feel right. And I said, What's wrong? She goes, I just feel real amped and just kind of jittery. And da, da, da. I'm like, Haven't you done this before? She goes, No, this is my first time. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> fuck me. Jesus Christ, her dad's going to kill me. And it was just like all of this, all of this whirlwind again. Like the same thing in the motel. It was like all this whirlwind. This situation right now is not conducive to me becoming the person I need to become in my life. And that's an awareness. That's an awareness we all need to have about we're in a situation. We know that it's not working for us, but we sit there and hope we should pray that someday it'll change. And it drives me absolutely crazy. So at that point, my girlfriend says, What do you think about getting an apartment together? Wow, this is getting serious. Mm. An apartment together. What is your dad going to say about that? Um, so yeah, we wound up getting an apartment together. And I told my friends, I said, Adios. And I was like, You know, we're taking our relationship serious. Blah, 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 again, Oh, blah, blah, blah. You're you're leaving all us guys for a grill. You're leaving us for something. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm leaving to go be happy. You know, we should all try to do that. You guys are all miserable. We go to the store, five of us, and we put a couple of dollars in together to find stuff to make for food every night. That's not the way I want to live. I've lived like that most of my life. macaroni Macaroni and cheese and hot dogs and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it's been an amazing journey and I wouldn't trade any of it for a minute.
1: So, one of the interesting things that I see again and again and again and again and again is that you we all have stories and we all have choices, not of just what to do, but what to reflect on. Somebody was talking about their brother and themselves. They used to get abused by their dad. The dad would kick their ass and the one brother... Joins the military and ends up being special forces and then ends up being, you know, cream of the crop. And he was he was tough. And for me, it was a real insightful thing because I was like, I I told the guy, I was like, well, you did get abused, but. It was actually training because had he not got his ass kicked, he wouldn't be an ass kicker. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the truth, because we adapt and we grow strong because of our adversities, not in spite of them, because of them. And we have the choice to look back and reflect on what it is that we're thankful for and what it is that we want to move forward with, exactly like what you've done with your life. And so it's really good. I didn't know all that, dude. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just liked you because you're in mm-hmm. your face and um, I respect that kind of attitude because I... I appreciate that I don't like people that beat around the bush uh, sometimes I do and I'm you know sometimes I don't most of the time I try not to because I believe that when I beat around the bush it takes away the value of the situation and what I can offer if you if you're straightforward you look people in the eye and you mean what you say yes and you say what you mean then you will make that situation better and so right now i I'm, I'm just curious, do you ever have situations where you reflect and, and you, and it still hits you in the, hits you in the feelers? Do you still have situations that like you, you mentioned you're writing a book right now, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to revisit old wounds and how, what is your process in order to deal with that? If you do have one or. Oh yeah. That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I didn't know you didn't know all that. Cause I thought I had said it in some of the competitions, but right. But just like movies, you hear things and forget. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: no, the process for that is a great question because that's been the, the most challenging part of the healing journey is forgiveness, forgiveness and empathy. And that's something that we do in my group coaching program. And that's something I do a lot in my coaching now. Um, I know coaching is not supposed to be therapy, but I'm, I'm, I'm a hybrid of being able to figure out. Essentially, what I tell people is that I have to change your perspective about your past, present, and your future so that you can be successful and have that unstoppable confidence because our perspective is everything. And most people are looking for a perspective shift of like, oh, I want, I want an overnight sensational change. But I just get people like, can you just look at it a little bit differently? So in that process, I was very angry with my mom. I mean, we literally won. She won the lottery while we were homeless. $5,000. She bought a scratcher, won $5,000. Now, making it up. God could strike me right now. <laughs> Yep. See, let's tell the truth. <laughs> no, listening. no. And, and it was, it was amazing. I mean, all oh, we got to buy clothes and we got to eat out and, and stuff like that. But mom, we could get an apartment. And I remember riding my bicycle when I was collecting cans. Cause that's part of what I did too, is collect cans and newspapers every day in between jobs to just everything we could do to bring mo- everything I could do to bring money in pretty much. I mean, she collected cans and newspapers too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was angry. I was very, very angry and bitter. And then I would tell her mom, what, grow up, you, you know, you need to act like an adult. And she would always say, I'm four years old. I'm four years old. I'm like, what do you mean you're four years old? You're 40. What's this bullshit about you're four? What? And that would piss me off. I'm like, right. take responsibility for your life, woman. You had a kid. You're supposed to do for that kid. That's what you're supposed to do. You're not and so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was crazy. And I found that everybody else who was miserable around me had the same situation. They were angry at their parents. They were angry at something... In their life they blame something in their life for why they were who they were and I was like I don't want to blame I want to learn I want to grow because that's when I was watching those successful people I'm like what did they do they had to be able to process this, process these emotions so I started researching and understanding forgiveness and empathy and I started and then, and then I remembered. I'm like and something I say often now is like you know if I walked in Scotty's shoes if I had been through everything that you've been through in your life Scott might I think like you yes Absolutely. That's why I, I, I have arguments and conversations with people today. Like, why are these people like this? Why are those people like this? I'm like, simply, if you walked in there, sh- no, I wouldn't do that. I have a brain. but No, no, seriously, if you grew up in the conditioning process that all these little boys and girls did from the age of zero to five, zero to seven, depending on when you want to look at the child psychology studies. That that's when our personality is formed. That's when our beliefs are formed. That's when we go set out in the world and we find the subconscious validation for what it is that we supposedly believe. And that just perpetuates that positive cycle or that vicious cycle. So I had to get in the mind of my mom and I had to sit there and really say, okay, how can I see everything that we've been through, through her lens? Not my lens, not as a victim, not as somebody who's pissed off and, and mad, but how can I see it from her perspective? Cause she would say, I did the best I could with what I had. I'm like, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. No, you had 7,000 people telling you, take care of your son and ditch the cats. Put your son back in school. Don't screw up your son. You made a you made a responsibility to have this kid. But she didn't do that. So I had to crawl into her mind and go, okay. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, 4 years old, 4 years old. And this is, this took years. This was not an overnight thing. This was this was this was quite a number of years. A little bit of therapy in between. And I'm like, 4 years old, why does that And that's when I started studying child psychology and realizing that's the person we become like her parents split when she was four, her dad moved out and left her with her psychotic mother. Oh, she had a psychotic mother too. She told me about a time that she accidentally left the keys inside the house and, and her mom, my grandmother, who I did not like,
1: um, I can tell you about that
0: last phone conversation if you want. Didn't end pretty. (laughs) I wished her well. And I never said another word to her. Um, but she, she had uh, left the keys inside the house. And when she got outside, she told me, she goes, her mother said, you know, do you have the keys? And she said, yeah. And she forgot and she locked the door and she didn't have the keys. And so when they went to go get back inside, the keys were inside and said, um, so they busted a window to get back inside. And her mom was like being all nice. We're like, oh, you're not in trouble. You're not in trouble. And as soon as she got inside, she held her hands over the, the, the stove to make her never forget to leave the keys in there because now they have to replace a little pane window on the, on the door. Oh, man. So I was like, oh, and what was what was really crazy about her situation is that my grandmother did without so my mother could have. So it's almost like my mom, my mom said this, too, you know, And in retrospect, it actually comes to me right now. So I should probably remember this in in retrospect. My mom really did say she goes, I want you to have what I didn't have. So I got to go outside and play and I got to go out and do things. I think the majority of that was so that she could live her own life and do it. She didn't want to be tackled down with a kid. We didn't hardly ever play at all. But. My grandmother gave her everything, like gave her the nicer food. My grandmother ate nothing. My mom always had vegetables and a and a and meat, and everything was about studying and learning. So my mom became very smart. So by the age of 16, she graduated high school, and she started going to the University of Santa Barbara. I always thought that was a lie because my mom made up lies all day long. Oh, I was a race car driver. I was a model. I was this, I was that. I'm like, you lived a lot of lifetimes in these years because you had at 21 years old or 19 years old, you had a daughter and then you had me at 26. So where did you fit all this stuff in, right? (laughs) Um, Anyways, I thought she was lying and it wasn't until after she died that I went through some of her papers and found a paper she wrote on um, Freud or something like that. Some crazy, like a 16 page handwritten, oh, typewritten, it was typewritten, uh, paper on her perspective on I, I, it was something like that Freud or somebody like uh Socrates or something crazy I'm like oh she was so smart she was people stupid she was mm-hmm. brought so she she had her mom as that situation so I just kept crawling into her brain and going okay so her dad leaves she only sees her dad on special occasions so she's got that father void oh that's what people mean my daddy issues and I just started putting all the pieces together and and really seeing it from her puzzle And I look at life as like a puzzle, that there's all these different pieces and we're always trying to put the picture together, but we don't want to deal with all the pieces. We don't want to put all the pieces in the puzzle. And so I tried to put her puzzle pieces together and really see things from her her perspective. Uh, And it still challenged me because I'm like, well, you could have still known. But again, thinking about the psychology of what we put ourselves through, I made that decision to break out of it, but not everybody does. Not everybody feels like they can or knows how to. So I thought she just got trapped and then she just started reading books to try to help herself. But the more books she read, The more intelligent, intelligent she got, more book smart she got, but more people smart she wasn't. And she was the kind of person that was unfiltered to the max up until the day she died. Um, And so I always had to work on that aspect of me to change that big time. And I still had to work on it, but I had I developed a sense of empathy and understanding for the scared little girl that she really was in a big girl's body. And that was manifested through all the stuffed animals that she had. I started again. All the people she had stuffed animals all the time, like. Okay, everybody collects something, stuffed animals. Then I'm like, why do you have so many cats? Later in life, like probably probably the last year of her life, I started asking her more in-depth questions. We actually wanted her to write this book with me. We were having dinner one night with my wife, and I said, oh, she goes, she goes oh, after I'm dead, you're going to tell all these negative stories about me. I said, no, actually, I'm going to write a book. I said, you know what? Let's write a book together, because I'm all about having both sides of the picture, because I learned that in a communications class, Seek First to Understand. I'm like, let's write the book together. Let's pick 10, 10 events in our life Let's pick 10 events in our life where I write my perspective and you write your perspective. We get together and then we talk about how we can learn from each other's perspective. And perhaps the reader can walk away with a different perspective on their own life. You know, a mother-son duo team. And so that way you, you can know that your, your story was, was told. Because I would love to hear your story and your words carefully thought out to better understand where you're at. And then she's like, okay, let's do it. And so she was getting, she, she wound up getting diagnosed with lung cancer um, and so her strength and everything wasn't as great as it was. So I bought her her favorite pen. She was super OCD about what kind of pens she used, what kind of paper she used. So I bought all her pens and paper and I said, okay, let's pick this out. And every time I went to go visit her, which was usually every day or every other day, um, she's like, yeah, I said, Did you write anything? No, no. And I was like, you really don't care. You're, you're kind of getting to that point where it doesn't matter anymore. You're starting to see the real value of life. And I watched that in her eyes. I watched that in her actions as she progressively got weaker and weaker and weaker. And it wasn't until the last couple of weeks of her life um, that she really found out the, what how she screwed up and how she could have done things differently. So for me, seeing that whole entire journey and being there, holding her hand as she passed away, you know, again, affirmed that life happens for you and not to you and i you know still at sometimes will have anger if i if i choose to if i think about it from a reactionary standpoint but now as i really get into the self help fluffy bullshit i realize love love we're not humans you know we we think we're human of course we're human but i have learned through the coaches that i've had and the books that they've told me to read the fluffy stuff um, there was a book called why me why this why now and it was a book from like the 70s or the 80s cuz you could tell by the author's picture on the back and I'm like, you want me to, cause I ordered off Amazon. I said, you want me to read this? She's like, yeah, read it. And I started understanding about us and about our psyche and about our soul's journey. And I started reading the untethered soul by Mickey singer and the, um, the surrender experiment by, by Michael singer, two amazing books. Hmm. And he talks about how we are souls having a human ex- experience. And he talks about being able to detach from the emotions. And it goes in line with how I think about things of reacting versus responding from the emotional standpoint, you could be in a situation and react, but what is that? The fight or flight. You know, if I choose to step back, like we were saying earlier, I take a breath and now I'm learning about breathing and meditating. Like, okay, you know what? I can see that I've, I've got emotion behind this. You know, now's not a really good time. Let me get back to you tomorrow. So I've learned to be able to do that
1: because oh, wow. my mom was all reactionary. That's, that's a good quality have, Yeah, Yeah, <laughs> especially
0: when you have a four-year-old son. Hey, I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm going to go step out here for a second. I'll be right back. Go step. Yeah. He's four. He's four. So I've learned that. So now I go into his mind. I get mad at first. I'm like, what do you wait a minute? He doesn't care if his room has is covered in toys. He thinks that's great. Now I can pick that one up. And I so I'm coming in there going, my expectation is you have your floor clean. We have our, we have clean floors so we can walk in. That's my expectation. That's what I've been brought up with. That's what I like. I like cleanliness. So I'm coming here putting my expectations on him when he's like, Hey dad, this is cool. What's your what's your beef? So I've <laughs> learned to see things from his perspective. And it even my my wife sometimes gets mad and she goes, You do that all the time now. I'm like, that's way we can understand and not be so mad and angry and resentful and retaliate towards people. So yeah, to to the question, it just, it took a lot of time, a lot of understanding, but one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself is, is really seeking first to understand. And Stephen Covey talks about it in the seven habits of highly effective people. And once I started applying that, that rule alone in my life, my business uh, success changed, my relationship changed, um, everything in my life changed and people didn't expect it because I was that other person. I was like, no, I have to be right. Well, if I'm if I'm right, then you're wrong, and if you're wrong, you're going to be either fight or flight, and not like me. So, what does that do? And My mom always had to be right, so I teach people, you know, do I want to be happy or do I want to be right? And you have to think about that. Like, so, like people can sit there and say, oh, this, 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 and this, and you can sit there and go, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But really, is this going to matter in five minutes, five weeks, five years? I'm going to make this person feel most like most likely not. Yeah, I'm going to make this person feel like shit. Nah, come on. So it's a process, but you know, it's uh, it's one that I'm glad that I went through
1: so your story brings up another question in my own mind from my own personal experience oh it's well (laughs) you know what maybe we can debate on that later because who knows who knows what this portal is maybe something anyway it doesn't matter so but but here's my question you know the issue or the topic of guilt Mm, that's because what i have seen is People make stupid choices, right? I know I have. And people around me have. People that were in charge of me when I was growing up, they they did, right? And what I've found is that they have – it's a silent killer. They have harbored guilt from their actions, and that has led to some devastating situations because they want to self – face, self-deprecate, felt self, you know, uh mutilate, self just because they say to themselves, you know what, I deserve bad things because I did bad things. And I'm imagining that your mother had about with guilt when she was when she had all of her When she was thinking about the situations that she's been in and the things that she's caused, did you ever talk to her about that? Or what is your take on how that influenced your relationship or just her life in the later years? It's a great question. Great question.
0: Guilt is, um, yeah, that's 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 a silent killer. It really is. And it's amazing how many people do feel guilty and they continue to punish themselves. We continue to punish ourselves over and over again for doing one thing. I mean, we've all done, I've done one thing and continue to punish myself over and over again after the person said, Hey, you made a mistake. You, you apologize. You did the right thing. You're trying to make amends. You're forgiven. But what do we do? We sit there. Oh, 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 bam, 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 bam. Do that. When she was growing up all my life, she smoked, smoked cigarettes, smoked cigarettes, chain smoker, chain smoker. This is back in the 70s, late 70s, and 80s when Nancy Reagan was out there. You know, drugs kill, and this is your brain on drugs, and smoking kills. And, and it's when that big thing came out. And I remember being in school, and they would talk about smoking kills, smoking kills, smoking kills. And my mom was my idol when I was a kid. And so I go, Oh, mom, please stop smoking. Please stop smoking. And it smells, and it's nasty, and da 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 da. And on many occasions, on many occasions, Don't tell me what the fuck to do with my body. Blah, blah. It's my response. If I ever get lung cancer, it's going to be because I've driven the Los Angeles freeways with my windows down for 30 years or whatever. You know, it's not going to be the cigarettes. You know, leave me alone. All throughout the years, start getting older, start coughing more. Mom. Just give it up, give it up. That's when the first little inhalers, the nicotine inhalers, started. So I bought those for her. I was not making very much money, and those things were like 30 bucks a box. So I said, Mom, start using these things. No, no, fuck you don't tell me what to do in my body. You know, my mom didn't have any guilt up until the end. My mom didn't give a rat's ass. If your cart was blocking her cart in the grocery store and you were off getting something, really, are you going to be that inconsiderate that you can't put your cart over next to me? There's other people in the store. I mean, she wouldn't, I'm like, Mom, just move their cart over she had to prove a point. She had to be right in every single thing that she did. No guilt, no absence of malice. Yeah. You know. But if you did, if you were not on her side, like I wasn't when I decided to leave her, then you were, you know, you're either with her or against her. And most people were against her because of the way she was. Um, so throughout her life, you know, she smoked. And like I said before, she developed lung cancer. Um, what had happened, what's really, which is really crazy. Um, it all started when I got a phone call one day, um, saying, um, that she was, she had been drunk and that she'd been grooming her dog and her dog had viciously bitten her all over her hand. And this is the second time it happened in her life. She did that when I was a kid before, I guess when I was a little kid, it happened that her dog bit her in the face and she had to have a bunch of plastic surgery, rhinoplasty and all this other stuff. Um, so she says, you know, um, Boo Bear bit me and I think I might have to go to the hospital. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm to the hospital. Mom's always been invincible. So she tried to treat it herself because she was a doctor. I mean, she wasn't a doctor. She didn't pass the doctor's test, but this is how brilliant she got. She could talk to doctors and they would ask her where she went to school because she read all the books. Oh, wow. I'm not even making it up. She would she, for Christmas. She was like, I want the new Gray's Anatomy book, not the show. But she was, I want the new PDR, the physician's desk reference, which I know, you know, I want this new, whatever, a senior aging book like the doctors get. And she would read that shit and she would understand it. So she tried to, to take care of her own thing, tried to debride it and all this other stuff. And it wound up getting infected. So that started a few trips to the hospital to have it debride and get it cleaned out. And lo and behold, later on, she started developing a sore on her, uh, her upper shin on the right side. And it started off as a quarter and then it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And she's like, yeah, this is weird. She goes, I'm treating it and it's not going away. I was like, oh, okay. And this is part of the time when she was going to the doctor. So they started looking at it they're like, well, and they thought it was a bunch of different stuff. They thought it was MRSA. You know, it's just, I mean, it's, the story is long, but ultimately what we found out was she had vascular insufficiency in her right leg. So there was no oxygenated blood getting out there to heal the wound. So they found out that and they thought, oh, they started doing, uh, Doppler sonars on our arteries and started finding out that, oh, I was like, what's that? <laughs> <It's> the microphone. <laughs> Edit that. No, <laughs> keep that in. <clears throat> um, so um, she had uh, a carotid endoctectomy, which means they pull your carotid artery out and they cut endoctectomy. it. Okay. In, in, carotid, car, uh, carotid end, endoctectomy.
1: Okay. Carotid endoctectomy sounds sounds complicated now you made me okay. think about it anyway so they <laughs> Sorry, cut a
0: they yeah. cut a hole they pull her, her arteries out clean out some of the calcification that was blocking it. she had like 98 percent occlusion on the right side so they cleaned that out put a stint in there and then they started then they did a doppler on her leg found out she had uh she needed a femoral bypass did the femoral bypass oh man it it failed and through that time i'm like mom you have to quit smoking like every doctor said you have to quit you have to quit smoking or you will die from this and she's like eh. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do with my body still um, and this ring is getting bigger and bigger and bigger And so she had the, the two femoral bypasses they didn't take because they would do the die do- I learned so much. They did the Doppler in her foot and find out there was no pulse down there It's not getting any blood flow and as her leg Became necrotic Man. yeah, she did not she did not give up. She did not give up I have pictures her, her, her leg literally if this is the right leg it started off as a quarter and then it started spreading and then it started flaking. And then literally her foot started going black. She literally, um, I got a phone call. She was in the Hemet hospital and they said, we cannot take care of your mom anymore. She will not accept treatment. She's going to need her leg amputated. I'm like, what? Cause I thought they needed to do another femoral bypass. I thought the doctors at the other hospital had screwed up, blah, blah, blah. I probably could have been a malpractice case, but I'm not that kind of guy because she didn't keep up her end of the bargain. She finally did quit smoking. She finally did quit smoking but I got the phone call and had to uh, schedule, they wound up scheduling UCI Medical Center to do the amputation. So without me telling her, I said, okay, we're going to be transferring you to another hospital that's going to take care of you. And I thought, okay, maybe when we get there, because I'm in Hemet. I mean, Hemet's, you know, no offense, right. but UCI Medical Antiquated Center. Yeah, to, yeah. UCI Medical Center. I mean, so I'm like, okay, we'll get there and they'll be able to figure this out. And then she won't have to have her leg amputated. Within the first day, doctor comes in and is looking at it. it looked bad. I mean, I swear I had pictures of it right before I got amputated too. Cause I'm weird like that A documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having to, cause she's like, that. They, they were telling me outside. They're like, if your mom doesn't get her leg amputated, she'll die. The, 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 the blood in her body will become poison and she'll die. And I still remember this. I had to walk back in there to again, make one of the toughest decisions in my life. And one of the toughest calls in my life. I said, mom, she's, I'm not cutting my leg off. This is bullshit. Get me out of here. I mean, just scream and to high heaven. And I'm like, they told me, they looked me in the eyes like, there's no way there is. There's not. I said, can we try to do a, a buy? Can, no, 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 no. It's way too far gone. We could have been doing this months ago, but no. Mm. And I'm like, and I believed him because I was like, eh, trust doctors. whatever. Mm. So I remember going back there, mom, you have to do this. I said, they're scheduling it for tomorrow. No, get me out of here. I'm like, mom, this is the result of all your decisions. This is the result of everything that you This is it. It wasn't Mercer and all this other stuff. I said, this is it. And I mean, her her leg at that point looked like it had been sitting on a barbecue. I don't know wow. how. I do not know how wow. she did it. I'm tough with pain, but I do not know how she did that. I, even they, they had cleaned it all out. They put a wound pump on there. She walked around with a wound pump on her leg, like sucking all the wound stuff out of there for like months, trying to heal it. But it was the arterial insufficiency. So you can suck all the juice out of there, but if you don't get blood flow back yeah, to that extremity, same, yeah. it it ch- chop. Ch- 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 and through that process also, I learned about diabetes. I thought diabetes was just, oh, you take an insulin injection and you're good. But then, I mean, her, her husband, when I was a kid, was, a, was an insulin-dependent diabetic, and that's another story I had to deal with. But everybody said, you know, is your mom a diabetic? Is your mom a diabetic? I'm like, no, why? Do diabetics get their feet cut off? I'm like, oh, yeah, they get their legs cut off, yeah, you know? I'm like, oh, wow. So I learned about that whole side of things in life. And so what it ultimately got me to do is when she was in the hospital um, for the leg amputation, they had taken an x-ray of somewhere. I, can't, I think we were doing a chest x-ray or something like that, but they wound up seeing uh, some spots on her lungs. So after the amputation, after the amputation, a couple days later, they because I had full rights to, to listen to everything and talk to them. And they said, um, we found spots on your mom's lungs. Oh, man. We need to do a needle biopsy. Are you kidding me? Oh, man. Really? Yeah. Um, and just preliminary, we think it might be stage four
1: whoa,
0: I got to walk back in the same hospital room that I was in a couple of days ago and say, hey, mom, by the way, if you haven't been through enough already based on your own actions, which is tough to tell people, um, you need to go in for a needle biopsy because you might have stage four lung cancer. I do not have lung cancer. Mom, you got to go through the process. You got to go through the tests. You know from all the research and studies you've done, this is the way they're going to be able to determine whether or not, it's malignant or benign and find out what's going on. Just do it. So she had to go through a battery, of test, Went up doing the needle biopsy, came back, yeah, stage four. Wasn't from smoking, went back to smoking. was like, screw it, I'm going to go back to smoking because I told her at that time, leg amputated, she went to an assisted living facility. And, um, you know, the deal was, I said, if you quit smoking, then I'll continue to help you as much as I possibly can. Meanwhile, she still had a trailer in Hemet with um, 16 cats. In four oh, in, man. in four cages. Ouch. So the cat the cat thing never stopped. I mean, there's a lot in between there. She actually got a house for a while. She was normal. She had a job. And then she lost that house. Had to come live with me in my garage. I bought her a 30 foot trailer. You know, and that and that was fine for a while too. You know, it was like she was retired and she lived on a super limited income and she had those cats. So I was literally driving from my corporate job to Hemet to the hospital, back home, and I did that circuit for months, uh, just wearing myself out. And then ultimately, um, she started getting a growth on her back. And we we're like, what's this? I, at that point, I really didn't know about mast- mastization of cancer. And this thing started off as a little ball and got bigger and bigger. I have pictures of that, too. It wound up being about that big, growing out of her shoulder like a planet. Wow. And so I went back to the doctor, and they confirmed that was, that, was mast- that was cancer that metastasized and that they needed to go in and remove this. I'm like, you're going to remove that? It's going to take her shoulder off. And so I remember being, I was in all the pre-op rooms. I got to go, I got to go to places because of her personality that nobody gets to go to. I almost got into the operating room because she was screaming and throwing a fit. I got to go in the recovery room. Nobody ever gets to go in there. I got to go in there because she wanted her sunglasses and her chapstick. She always had to have her glasses and her chapstick.
1: It was, (laughs) I'd be in
0: the waiting room. Like, I'm like, she's going to want me to be there. Like, no, Mr. Roush. There's nobody. Christopher Roush, you know, please come to the. I'm like, oh, we need you to come in here. I said, my mom's going crazy, right? I was always the level-headed one. <laughs> so after that operation, which um, they told me she might not survive, um, and I actually, at that point, and this is to God's truth, I actually looked at the anesthesiologist and the doctor. I said, whenever it's her time, it's her time. And I just kind and I kind of, and I kind of did this. I went, I'm like, hey, if you give her a little extra, she's miserable right now. She wants to go home. So much to her. Her personality and everything else, she came out of it. and She was fine and wound up be in the hospital. And the craziest thing happened. I still remember this. I was in the hospital and I turned my back to her and I was getting something out of my backpack because basically I lived out of a, out of a backpack <laughs> because everything was there. Yeah. And she said, she said while well, I had my back turned to her, she goes, "Tell Barbara it's not worth it." And Barbara's my wife now, as you know. She goes, "Tell Barbara it's not worth it." I turn around thinking to myself, is she really going to acknowledge this? Is she finally going to come to grips with her life? Is this really going to be the moment where she kind of wakes up and goes, oh, yeah, now I get it. And so I turned around, and I expected a 1,000% some smart-ass defensive comment. I said, tell Barbara it's not worth it. What? She goes, and she looked at me, and she said, smoking. Because at that point, she was like, <sighs> you could hear her basically suffocating to death. Yeah. And her dad quit cigarettes. I used to smoke. I smoked up to two packs of cigarettes back in the day, but my grandfather had passed away 20 years after he quit smoking. And the day he died, I quit, I quit cigarettes. I just threw the cigarettes in the trash and was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm uh uh-uh. even if you quit, you die. No, thanks. And <laughs> seeing what my mom was going through, even at a young age. So I said, cigarettes, huh? She was, yeah. And I'll, I didn't, I didn't press it. I just said, Thank you. I will. As that at that point I felt and everything I'd learned in personal development. And I mean, you and I knew each other back then. I mean, she passed away in 2011. Um, I just, I had respect for her. I had, I wanted her to have her dignity and not be like, see mom, I told you it was like, and for me that was, like, I still get chills. I still get chills. And I was like, Oh, she gets it now after 69, actually 60 at that point. She was 68. Um, after 68 years on this planet, you're finally starting to get what this is all about. She said, yeah, nobody comes and visits me, you know, blah, blah, blah. I thought I had friends at the, at the RV park. And, you know, people would write her cards and stuff like that. But she finally started getting it. And on the drive home, I went, or not to the drive home, she was put in another assisted living facility. And from the hospital to that place, I still had her trailer. And she said, um, she goes, I want to go home. She says, I, I want to go home. I said, Mom, you can't go home. You have an amputated leg. You have stage four lung cancer. You're not going to do the treatment. She said she was going to, but she wasn't. I said, you're not going to do the treatment. I said, you're only going to get worse. I said, you can't go back there. You couldn't make it there when you were there. There's stairs. Oh, you could put a ramp. You could, We could get a, this, and we could do this, and we could do this, and trying to put it on me again to, to make her world better. Oh, man. And um, I had to say no. I had to say no. I put. That's another time in my life where I put my life, my wife's life, first. And I wasn't, I felt in some that way I was being be hard. That oh, yeah. be hard because I knew, I knew she wanted to go home. And now that she realized the, the preciousness of life, she wanted to go home and be with her cats. She wanted to die on her trailer, but she had always talked about committing suicide. So I'm like, not on my watch, you're not going to blow your brains out. She had a gun and I'm like, you're not going to blow your brains out in that trailer. So I have to go deal with that. No, 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 no. So I had taken the bullets out of the gun way before. And I figured, well, if she ever asked me for the bullets, then she might've been looking to do it. And one day she's like, where'd the bullets for the gun to go? And I said, why are you looking at the gun? So I get more bullets," I said. "Don't do it inside the trailer." Oh man! Oh, <laughs> I'm, man. Like, oh, I'm like, I'm like, don't do it inside the trailer, you know. And we had those very, very candid conversations. And so uh, I remember that she was screaming wow. at me, and I felt like here, I, here I am again, you know, hurting her in her life. But I'm like, no, no, because if I do that, I'm gonna have a shit ton of stress, worrying every single minute. She couldn't even make it to the bathroom anymore. She was just peeing in a bucket and going to the bathroom in a bucket and, and dumping it out. That's how bad she got before she had the leg amputation. So put her in the home, and I really tried to make her feel extra special. Um, I wound up having to make a tough decision to um, bore, or to find homes for her cats. That's another story, but uh, yeah, it's been a crazy journey. So all the cats. For her, her sixteen
1: cats. Oh yeah, damn. Yeah, damn. So what was the connection between her and cats? I don't know that one. Self love. It, it was the it unconditional
0: was love. So she didn't have love from her mother. She didn't have love from her father, but from the stuffed animals and from the animals, she could always guarantee. Okay. That she was going to be loved, and I get it. I get it. I love my my cats and my dogs. Or I get it. I
1: understand it because people are crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that's for damn sure. You just have
0: to find the right people.
1: (laughs) You just have to find the right people. That's the problem. Man, so so now today you're doing. You're so what. What is it that you would say? You do. If somebody asks you, what do you do? I, I I guess
0: I make people think. That's really what it is i mean i could call myself a coach or a speaker or an author or a show host or anything like that. my thing is to get people to think is to get them to ask themselves questions and give themselves honest answers to and then take action from that so i literally what i said is like i want people to shift their perspective about their past present and their future shift their perspective and kind of dig into the reality that everybody has their own journey and it's okay i mean even through the last year with covid the presidential elections the george floyd situation uh, you can call it a murder situation, whatever it might be. Um, everything that's happened over the last year and seeing how the divisiveness in the United States has been, my goal is to get people to do what my mom did and just have that shift and kind of say, wow, it really isn't about what, whatever you want to do, whatever anybody else wants to do, fine, go do it. Fly your freak flag. If you want to vote for Trump, you want to vote for Biden, you want to vote for an anarchist, whatever the thing works for you, as long as it doesn't impact me and my family. The anarchist thing probably.
1: but, But, you know, whatever your freak flag is, go fly it. Okay so you coach people and you have advice for them and you ask them to do certain things and have you ever met resistance when you say do this and what does that look like how do they resist and then what do you do to get them to overcome the resistance
0: it's mm, a great question ultimately it's about again looking at the aspect usually what they do is they want something but they don't want to do the work they don't want the uncomfortableness they don't want and ultimately it narrows down to what do people think what do people think you know this is where i've been my entire life you know that sounds hard for me to do okay i just want you to change your perspective from being hard yeah it's going to be challenging so when you say something's hard okay that's just gonna be is it am i gonna make through it no it's gonna be challenging but you're gonna make through it you're gonna have to get uncomfortable get comfortable being uncomfortable but as soon as you start doing that and as soon as you start allowing yourself to be your truest form of expression you're going to find that people are going to be resistant to you. And I tell them the story about, you know, how I wanted to better myself. And my friends were like, Oh, Chris, what are you going to do? I said, sometimes you're going to have to make hard decisions. So I tell them to draw a line down the paper and put positive and negative and put the five people you're around the most. Again, Stephen Covey, five mm-hmm. people you're around the most. Are they positive? Are they going to hold you accountable? Are they going to support you as you fly your freak flag? Are they going to say, Oh, what are you doing? I coached a lady who was senior in her ears and she had been widowed. And it was crazy how, you know, the, the objection of what the church would say and what everybody else would say. But ultimately, I gave her the confidence or she had the confidence. She just had to see things differently. She had to see things like, oh, no, I don't have to make sure that everybody likes me. I don't have to make sure that everybody's perspective of me is, is what, what they think it is. I just want to be my own individual. And so through that process, we create confidence by saying, okay, where is it that you feel like somebody's going to judge you? So we just start asking that question. Well, they're going to probably say this. Okay, well, you're making an assumption. Why don't you just go talk to some people? Why don't you get the input? You know, just start unpeeling the the preconceived notion or the belief that something's going to be bad or something's going to be hard. I'm like, have you ever gone? Have you ever, ever seen a beautiful view? Have you ever seen a mountain view? Yeah. Okay. What did it take to get up there? Oh, we went hiking this one time. And yeah. Did you get hurt? Did you get scraped? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. This one time. Duh, duh, duh. But how was the view? The view was amazing. Okay. That's life. You're going to get skinned up. You're going to get dinged up. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. You're going to sweat. You're going to run out of breath. You're going to wonder why you're doing this. And then you're going to get to that view and go, oh, wow, this is beautiful. This is great. And then you're going to go, wait, there's another view. Let's see if we can do that one. That was a little bit more challenging, but hey, I got strong from this one. I'll probably get strong from that one. And so many people go, oh my God, here's the view. And that's, I don't want to do that again. That was too uncomfortable. I want to go back to my comfort zone because then I know what certainty is. I'm like, there is no certainty. Even through COVID, I want things to go back to normal. What's normal? I could literally get in my truck, Scott, and get T-boned by a, a driver, and this could be my last interview. Right. But I made sure when I left my house, I said, I love you guys. I gave my son a big hug because you just never know when your time's going to be. So really for me at this point as a coach, as a mentor, um, it's really about identifying the fact of what is the legacy and what is the potential regret? Because we're all going to go. Yep. We're all going to go. And for me, regrets are the single biggest factor that motivates me. So it's about finding what is that person's legacy. Do you want to be known for this person who played it safe? Because you're worried about it. These people are going to be dead. Their opinions are going to be dead, but you're going to still be sitting here going. Yeah. And then I tell him a story. I have a guy, I got a friend of mine who's a, a multi multi-millionaire, if not a billionaire, a distant friend. I want to make sure I clarify that. <laughs> not, not like we hang out all the time, but I know, I know him and I've heard his conversations and we've had some. And I said, you know, and his dad got cancer and he was trying to spend all this money to save his dad all the money in the world can fly him to germany do all this stuff and his dad did pass away and i mean trying every every type of alternative easter everything all the money in the world couldn't save him i said did you ever ask your dad like if you could do your life over again what would you do differently even though his dad was successful too not nearly as successful as a son and he said you know his dad was really great and great life and everything he goes he goes yeah he goes i really regret not taking those chances where i could have been on the leading edge of something he goes i had a lot of opportunities in different industries and different things but i always wanted to play it safe i always i came from nothing so when i got something i wanted to play it safe and i said oh he was in survivor mode because i think that we're in we're in a couple of different situations we can either be in survival mode or thrival mode and for me it wasn't until i got my coach back in 2019 and I thought I'd done all the work and I thought I was all woke and everything else. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this, what is this, this block? There's some sort of block that's keeping me from being like really successful. I'm like right there. What is that? What is that? And she goes, fuck mate. He goes, you're in survival mode all the time. I'm like, no, I'm not. I've made it. I have a nice house. I have nice things. I have a rental property. I have a great job. I'm not in survival mode. Yes, you are. Because you're constantly worried about becoming homeless again. You're constantly worried, like, okay, if I lose that job, then I've got this, this, and this, and I could sell this, and I could do this, and I could do this. You've got every out planned to make your life certain. But Chris, life, there's no certainty in life. The magic in life is being a kid. And then I really started seeing the world through my son's eyes and going, wow, we use that, we lose that playfulness, we lose that curiosity. We lose that sense of adventure. So in my clients, I get them back to that kid-like state. First, we change the perspective about anything that they have a false belief about why they are a certain way. So how can we repicture that? How can we repaint that? Write a letter to themselves. I want you to write a letter to your younger self and and, and let you know that, that everything's going to be okay, that you're going to turn out great and heal that little person inside of you. De- a couple of different ways. I have people write their eulogy. Back in 2008, when I was stuck and trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do, and when I when I finally started Master Motivators, my company, I literally was like, "What am I going to do? What am I going to do?" So I went to a funeral of a coworker, and I was sitting in the back of the church, and everybody was getting up there eulogizing her and saying really beautiful things about her. And I knew her; I didn't know her that well, but I was like, "Wow, I really didn't know Ann that well. She was a really beautiful person. She really—I mean, everybody just person after person after person getting up there saying all these beautiful things." Then my buddy Dave Riley gets up there in his gray suit and his pink tie and just starts blubbering. I'm like, wow. And in such a beautiful way. And I thought, all right, I'm all about questions. So I said, Chris, if you died tomorrow, who would show up and what would they say? Who would show up and what would they say? And at that point, Probably 10, 15 people would show up, probably a case of beer, bottle of Jack Daniels, Motley Crue CDs. And they would tell stories about, oh, Chris did this when he was drunk. Chris did this thing. Chris loved girls. Chris was a smart ass. Chris, you know, had an amazing story and turned around. Uh, Chris did stupid. I'm like, I want my legacy to be way better than that. I don't want to be, that was a point in my life. You know, that's part of still who I am. I'm not, I'm not that much different than that person, but I've changed so much. And so I went home and I was like, let me write my eulogy. So I took out a pad of yellow paper and a pen. I still remember it. And I was like, we are here, the gather here today to remember the life of Christopher Rash. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> wrote it, wrote it, wrote it. Probably took me about 20 minutes to write it, a full page. And then I got to the end and I was like, I think I went and got a Pepsi or something like that, came back to my office and I sat down and I started reading it out loud. I started reading it and I'm like, let me read it out loud as though you were at a church or at a service or something like that. And as I was reading it, halfway down, I started having tears down my face. I did not expect to cry. I did not expect to cry. I knew what I wrote, but reading it in its entirety moved me so much that I realized that the things I was focusing on were bullshit. Nothing in there about my car being on the cover of Hot Rod. Nothing in there about me playing guitar and learning how to play 19 songs and all this other stuff. (laughs) It was about, and ultimately at the end, it, it says, and it's still to this day. I live this every single day that Christopher Roush will have fought for what was right and what was fair. He will have risked for which that mattered and he will have left the earth a better place for who he was and what he did. So from that point forward, that became my operating plan. So then I had a basis to be able to say, is that working? Is the decision I'm about to make, the choice I'm about to make, is this working for that legacy or against that legacy? Right. So if I'm thinking about having a couple of drinks and getting in my car, oh, I'm OK. Is that, is that a smart move in this legacy to live a long time, to ultimately be a father? Because I wasn't a dad at that point. No, this is, this is stupid. So either don't go anywhere or call an Uber. Um, so I started making different decisions. And I started becoming a different person um, and really immersing myself into personal de- development anymore, even more. So my gift now is being able to have people do that, have those breakthroughs. I mean, that older lady who had the breakthrough, I just had a meeting with her not too long ago, just a little catch-up session, mm-hmm. and she's doing fantastic. She and her boyfriend. she has a boyfriend now. She realizes, she goes, I have to leave my church because they're not comfortable with the relationship because he's Catholic and I'm Christian. And so she stood on her own. She's like, and before she was petrified of what the church would say if she started dating. Wow. She's the, the secretary and all this other stuff. She does a youth miniseries mini and stuff like that. And um, she was kind of worried, but then she's like, now I've got the confidence. Now I've got the ability and, and it's okay for them to think what they want to think. I'm going to go do my thing and I'm not going to worry about that because now I'm happy. And now I see that you're happy when you do the things that you love to do and not worry about what everybody else is going to say, because they're generally miserable. And that's what that misery love company thing. So yeah,
1: we just got them and, and to this date haven't had a failure yet. Wow. And, and what you do is basically, is basically the definition of move, what you're talking about, because, you know, in order for them to have a different Life, they have to have a different perspective. In order to have a different perspective, they have, to, they have to move something in their mind or something in their body. But, you know, and the whole acronym of move is make a difference in somebody else's life, which is 100% what you're doing. Because when you do that, you're able to get out of your own head. And when you're out of your own head, your thoughts can't harm you. But when you're in your head and you're thinking about "woe is me" and this is the situation, then you are a sitting duck, and it is brutal. Most people I know, and then you know the O is offer up your time, talents, and gifts. And so your your life growing up was freaking hard, man. Like to hear that and to to put myself in your shoes, like what you're doing with your mother, right? I I do that, and and you know and so but guess what that was the biggest blessing to the world because diamonds are shaped from coal with lots of pressure (laughs) and if you didn't have that pressure you wouldn't have the capacity to make the impact of what you're doing and so i just see this story after story and and the v is to find victory in the small things right so you look back and you're appreciative and you look around and you're appreciative and even in those moments of adversity you're able to glean the insight which is the appreciation that you are able you're here and you're able to affect change and you're able to take that experience and translate it to others benefits and then the e is to encourage others right and so your story represents, in a huge way, everything about Move, and so you and I—we're really on very similar pages, dude. And so, I'm, I'm just freaking ecstatic that you came on the show to talk about your situation because I didn't know all of that, and I know whoever's listening to this is gonna say, "Damn, I hope so." My, I, you know, my, my, my mom wasn't that much of an asshole. <laughs> You know, my, my my dad screwed me up, but you know what he, or, or, or that kind of thing. You know, my mom was worse. I'll go toe to toe for his story, but then guess, you know, he's taking it and he's doing something good with it. I guess maybe I could too. And it's so crazy because you don't know the lies that you touch. You don't know from something like this, from your own show, people of people of people that heard something and they may have just heard one little One little thing, and you might've been saying it and meant this, but they heard it and heard your heart and they applied it and they felt it and it changed them and it impacted them. So I definitely think that you're on the right road. I think that you have great things in store for you. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that we're friends. I'm glad that we're connected and I'm I'm excited to see what's what's going to come out of this, and if there's something that I can do to help. But um, so, if somebody wanted to reach out to you and, and get some type of coaching, or maybe get some of your insight, where would they find you? How would they get a hold of you?
0: In a hole in the desert.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Longitude the, the, and latitude, or yeah, what? no. The the easiest place to get a hold of me
0: is uh, my website, christopherrausch.com. R A U S C H, christopherrausch.com. Newly remodeled. Look at awesome. I'm, uh, my 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 web designer has become a personal friend of mine. Ben did a phenomenal job with it. So yeah, I'm very proud of it. All my stuff is right there. All my social media there. My shows. Everything is all in wait, one spot. On and, and haven't you written a book already? I did write a book. I have not published published it. Oh well, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> That's a long. You get, we
1: got another show. Oh wait, we here we go again. Let's, let's talk about what's wrong with
0: Chris. Oh, yeah, we got that show. Yeah, yeah that could be a show. I, what's, what's wrong with Chris? Let's talk about the perfectionist syndrome that you get. Okay, so that's analysis
1: by over or paralysis by over analysis kind of thing. Yeah,
0: I did write a book called 69 Tips for Living Your Kick-Ass Life, Volume 1. And it was basically a riff on you remember. Do you remember Life's Little Instruction Book? No, It it was like gifted to everybody. It was probably about that big. It was called Life's Little Instruction Book. And basically it was like. You know, it was oh, all, like chicken, uh, chicken soup for the soul kind of thing. A little bit, but it was basically like a, a life manual, if you will. And each, it was just number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It was every, you just read like, be nice to somebody today. It was like Got it. The, the easy stuff. And so I took that premise and I made it foul. I, t- I, t- ah. I put my own spin on it, talking, talking my real language. Somebody asked me the other day, like, how would you describe yourself? And I said, well, and the easiest way that I found the most effective is that I'm one part Tony Robbins, I'm one part George Carlin, all mixed up at an ACDC concert. So that was kind of the framework of the book. It was sarcasm. It's like one of, the, one, of the, one of the tips was like, don't be an asshole. You're like, just don't be an asshole. And it's like, be nice to everybody, but like, just don't be an asshole. And then I go in and I talk about, it's actually the download on my, the, the download that should be still there is a download of all of those tips. But in the book, I expand on each one of those tips. And of course, in a more personal development way, but I'm like, here, don't be a dick. Here's how you don't be. A, and, it, and by the way, if you don't understand this, then you might be the dick. So it's just, it's kind of a sarcastic, funny way of looking at life. And I figured for the, for the blue collar kind of demographic people out there that liked, you know, clean, clear cut language, if you will, I would appreciate that. And so I wrote it in that vein. I wrote it From the voice of trying to be sarcastic in a way and trying to be funny in writing, like, oh, that would be funny. Let me write this, you know, thinking, okay, I'm writing, but I'm not talking. So I got the book done and I set it aside and everybody told me, I'll set it aside for a couple of weeks and then go back and give it a once through. And as I was reading it, I was like, this sounds contrived. It sounds like I wrote it with the intent of writing a funny, sarcastic book. Oh, wow. Interesting. So. And because I was reading it, I read it out loud. I'm like, I really wouldn't say that in a conversation. I don't, I don't imagine me saying it that way. So I had a problem with putting the book out because it didn't sound like my voice. It sounded like me, but it didn't sound like my voice. So a bunch of people were like, oh my God, everybody goes through that with their first book. Their first book. It's not funny enough. Just put it out. Just put it out. I'm like... No. And then literally I was going to start, I was going to, I was going to revise the book cause it's already done. I've already got a deal with rockstar publishing. So I could just go get it published. And then my mentor who I value my mentors immeasurably. So if you guys do mentors coaches, you need mentors and coaches, um, because they keep you on track. So my mentor had said that she had, she's spiritually deep, you know, all this, Interconnected universe stuff. That's all the way I describe it and she all oh, I had a, a thought about you and you need to write a book And you know and she does a reading for me and spells all this stuff out She goes that's gonna be your thing Chris and I said well I've got this book I, I had I planned on doing the sarcastic book I called it volume one So I was gonna do one or two of those and kind of get my get my feet out there obviously just as more of a uh, 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 Sales funnel thing kind of like here's how you can get to know about me And I told her I said I have another book called change your attitude change your life, which is a personal development book I said, I've been writing that over the years. It's all about emotions and, and our conditioning and a whole process, like a manual. That's why I called it the kick-ass guide to life. It was like a guide to life, the kick-ass way. And she's like, no, we're doing it on a Zoom call. She's like, no, no. And I said, well, I got this other book, but I want to do this book like after the other books because I want this one to be the one that potentially gets published. And she's like, well, tell me about that one. And I said, well, that one's called It's Just You and Me, Kid. It's a story an adventure, of an adventure of a mother and son who lived a, kind of a screwed up life, but ultimately both, uh, you know, I can't remember what the exact secondary line because it's changed so much. But initially it's called um, It's Just You and Me, Kid, because I was supposed to be placed for adoption when I was born. And I found that out later in life. I've also found out that my mother had several abortions, one she had after me. Oh, man. And so I would have had a brother, apparently, in 1972. I was born in 69, but she said she had an abortion in 1972. Um, but she was supposed to place me for adoption. And I said, well, why didn't you? And she says, well, I delivered you. And the nurse back in the day would say, you know, do you want to see him? And she said, I just wanted to see you for a second. So they put the clock down and laid you against me. And I just kind of looked into your eyes and said, well, it's just you and me, kid. And I was wow. like, okay. So, and then immediately Patricia's like, that's the one. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you want me to go through all the painful stories of my past first? She goes, that's the one, Chris. She goes, your story is what really will catapult you to the next level. Your story is going to be read by so many. And she's like, I see it. She goes, Chris, you don't realize this. And this is sometimes, and I, I've worn this believe. She actually gave me this. This is funny. It's a high-end story. She actually gave me this bracelet. It used to be dark blue. It used to be like this. But I have this since 2013. 2013, she gave me this oh, wow. thing called Believe. And sometimes we have to believe in others. We have to believe what other people see and feel about us. Sometimes when we don't have that own belief. She's like, Chris, you don't realize it. I watch your shows. She goes, you have a unique way of asking questions. You have a Oprah uniqueness about you. And that's all I'll say. She goes, she goes, You have so much that's ahead of you that's it's it's gonna be unimaginable. She goes, but you need to get this book done. Because that's what the universe is telling me. That's what she goes, that's why I felt compelled. And I I knew her and back she wrote, a, she wrote a book called The Karmic Alibi and I got a copy of it. And back then I started reading. I'm like, what's this? I couldn't even finish reading it. I was right. like, I told her this today. I'm like, I got your book, Mumbo but yumbo. I was like, what's this shit? of karma and blah, 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 blah. If I can't see it, touch it, feel it, it doesn't exist back then. So I remember that. And people do come into your life for certain, certain reasons, season, or a lifetime. So in 2013, oh. she came into my life and everything was great and she gave me this bracelet. And then it wasn't until last year like around after COVID started that out of the blue, she said, Hey, you know, can we have a call? And she, she tells me, she goes, I've been called, I felt compelled that I needed to connect with you. And we are polar opposites. I mean, she's artist and very quiet. She's amazing. I mean, She's a beautiful person, but here I am a busted, you know, I'm a bull in a China shop. And for me to sit there and go, why are you reaching out to me? What, what is this? And she's like, I, I, I have to, I'm, I'm a, I'm a spirit guide, you know, all this, again, to me, was fluffy stuff. She goes, I just, I'm, I'm called here to tell you this, Chris. That's all I can tell you. It's up to you what you do with it. So that's the book I'm working on that I told myself would have the rough draft done by the end of May. I said this last year in September, and I haven't written a word, God's honest truth, since <laughs> December. I tend to be one of those people that will go hide out in my trailer and go camping for five days and pound it out because I've, I've done everything up until we're about to be homeless. So I've done my, my childhood, which is all by memory. I started keeping journals in 1997. Oh damn! So from 1997 until now, everything's journaled. All the other situations with my mom being in the hospital, all the different things that I went through mentally in my own life, all of that is journaled. So I just need to get to that part. And then it's just about going back through and reading those journals. And yeah. I'm, I'm not looking forward to that, quite honestly. Because I was was pretty messed up. I used to complain about the same thing over and over again. And I'm going to see that. But at least now I know from the perspective where I'm at now, I had to go through that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I feel like you're going to have a rough road to hoe in the way of looking at all of the experiences. And how do you glean which ones? Because you can't have everything. You're going to have five novels, right? You're going to have so much stuff. So how do you boil it down and and put these things on the shelf. But those things were very important. Those things were shitty. Those things were pe- things that people don't experience. And you, how are you going to put that on the shelf in order to have only these stories? That to me, I think is going to be a real difficult process. I, well, and I'm no, just going to you know, give it to
0: somebody else and tell me which stories do you think I'm going to give it to like five people and you tell me which stories speak to you the most.
1: So I had the, the reason I'm saying that also is from personal experience, oh. you know, with, with Sage and so I had a my son that had a 10% chance of survival and ended up having he was in the NICU for over 7 months and had 10 major surgeries and after the whole thing was done I had put together there was 15,000 videos and pictures of me documenting every day every day and and my wife like she's really good she got a lot of pictures a lot of everything and so I wanted to to do like a little sizzle reel little something like to put out there, Hey, this story is, is crazy. Check it out. And what I did was as I went through and the medical records were 5,586 pages. Okay. So I went through and looked at all of the different things that happened on a timeline and the different medications and the different procedures and the different surgeries and the different doctors and the different, all of it. Right. And literally I just did it from a documenting basis like boom this day this happened this day this happened this procedure that procedure this procedure that procedure and then just put it on a timeline on a video where it was like da. right now that's not telling a story that's not showing the whole entire event that's just listing things right that was 42 minutes long and then i'm like this is a real <laughs> how do i take this out and put it aside and only you know, and and that reminds me of your story. You had so many different things that happened, but how do I take that out? Because that was a life and death situation, and that's freaking important, and that's crazy. I can't. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. So, so I. So it's a documentary, is what it is. And and again, it's it's a similar thing. And I'm. And that's one of my other projects that I'm putting together at some point soon. <laughs> Not as soon as I want. Oh, but you're gonna soon write your book in May, soon. huh? <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, I haven't said that yet. Maybe I need to. But what I did do is I ordered something online, write your book and whatever. We'll see how it works. I bought a few of those. Yeah, yeah. So so we'll see. I know you got to start somewhere. And at yeah. some point, you know, you, you can't pull a carrot out of the ground and expect it to grow faster, right? So it comes when it needs to come. And I guess that's where faith comes in, right? So. So before we end this conversation, let's, let's have a conversation. I've
0: been be just getting started.
1: <laughs> I don't know how it's been a little while, but, but it's been power packed full of interesting stuff. So, but I want to touch on faith. Sure. Now, I don't necessarily mean faith when it comes to like your religion, if you're Christian or Catholic or, you know, any of that. What I mean is your faith in, in, in humanity, in In what you think, like, for example, the Hebrew language doesn't have a word for coincidence. They say divine intervention. And so coming from a point where you're like, if I can't see it, touch it, smell it and taste it, it don't exist. To uh, somebody that has a very tremendous influence in you that has made very interesting points where you're like, Whoa, how did you know that? How did you, and it, and it touched you in, in somewhere where you can't really explain. Right. And you have that feeling and you have that understanding. And so it's really changed your perspective. And so how does faith look to you right now? What is, what does faith mean? Probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked. Um, great
0: question. Faith. We, when you said faith in humanity, it really it really triggered me into thinking about the last year. And over the last year, I have been very cynical about humanity in seeing all the bullshit on social media, the divisiveness, the name calling, the rhetoric, everything. It's not about politics. It's about hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. That's what it is. I mean, if you want to vote for whoever, be fine. That's It's all supposed to happen. So I have my faith is that it's shifted from everything happening to me. To everything happening for me so I have the faith that whatever is in my journey is supposed to happen and that whatever is happening in anybody's journey is supposed to happen it's it's really about those critical points like I've shared in this interview this discussion about you know you get to those points you have a you have a fork in the road I mean that, that the fork in the road I could have sat there and said oh I can't leave my mom that fork in the road my life would have turned out much differently the fork in the road go to school no I would probably be working at Circle K and pushing shopping carts. No offense to anybody who wouldn't. I mean, trust me, there's some days where I would love to just do that, especially when I was in my corporate life. I'm like, man, I just want to do something simple because it's not about money. It's not about ego. It's not about numbers. It's about the impact. It's like you talk about a move. That is tremendous right there because that's what life is about. And once people start realizing what life is really about, then we can get to the humanity part. That's why I'm on the board of directors now for helphealhumanity.org. That's why I'm over there, it's because. Um, we need to heal each other. We need to heal one another. And through that process over, over the last year, I just like, oh, my God, people are losing their shit. But then this little app came out after if you've heard about it, Clubhouse.
1: I have heard about it. I haven't been on it. People have said, have mentioned it to me. But so Clubhouse for me has been
0: massively perspective shifting because literally, if you watch social media and you watch these, which I don't. I hear about it because I'm in the house with two women who love to watch the news. So I do hear about it and they love to talk about it. I, I stopped watching the news like 10 years ago because I found myself at 11 o'clock at night yelling at the TV, but yet getting up in the morning and not doing anything about it. Oh, I'm mad about the sex trafficking. Oh, I'm mad about this. I'm mad about that, but I didn't do nothing. Nothing. What I do I do? I go to work and talk about it with other people. Oh, can you believe what this is? And this is bullshit. And but wasting valuable time when we could be changing the world or changing ourselves, bitching about stuff that really doesn't even matter that's coming from a place of a hurt child. So my goal is to try to find the hurt child in people. But when this Clubhouse app came out, which is essentially for for those of you guys who aren't familiar with it, it's like the old style chat rooms. So you get on the phone, you are just talking to a bunch of people and you're just having conversations. You have no idea, well, now you do. So on this app, um, and I didn't wanna do another app. So I was already doing, I was focusing on my Instagram social media. I, I wasn't focusing on my social media at all, but then I started having people wanting to be on my show but then they would say, well, what are your numbers? I'm like, I really don't care what my numbers are. As long as one person hears it and is impacted, that's all I care about. I don't care about having 17 million downloads. I mean, ultimately that's my goal and that's my vision, but for right now I'm great because I know it's going to go in that direction, but I wasn't focusing on that. And then Within, I had somebody say, hey, you need to get on Clubhouse. And I'm like, yeah, right. I'm not going to do another social media thing. I've got enough on my plate. And then one day within two hours of each other, I had two other people who were influential in my life. Like, Chris, really, you need to get on this app. This is all about voice. This is all about connecting. This is all about serving. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, all right, send me the thing. So they sent me the invite. And if you know anything about it, the invites originally probably still are, are were coveted. Because it's only for iPhone users right now. They're, they're developing the Android app. And so I was like, and it's again, that little whisper. Little whisper chris get on the app and i did not want to do anything more social i was like social everybody's a bunch of idiots on there i don't want i don't need any more idiots no 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 but there was something that said go do it so i signed up for it and i learned quickly it's basically like the mall of america if you took that place and you and you just took a giant area where you could go to any seminar you want so i i'm a visual i'm a visual person so Literally, I imagine walking through a door and you're like, okay, I could go and learn about real estate over here. I can go learn about personal development here. I can go learn about yoga. I can go have a silent room here. I could go learn about Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter. I can go into any room and become a part of a conversation or listen to a conversation um, for that connectedness. Because people were zoomed out. People were all zoomed out. People were stressed out. But what was crazy about this is I started going to these rooms and fully expecting like a pitch session or whatever else at a traditional seminar. Hearing all these personal development experts, you know, doing all this shit, and I was blown away at the amount of compassion, love, empathy, everything that people in the rooms that I was attracted to were pouring into one another. Hmm. People were going to like, I, "I don't know what to do. I've been, I, I lost my job, and I literally, um, you know, if it wasn't for for the fact they can't evict us right now, I'd be." And then people were just pouring in, and people weren't going, "Oh, hi, I'm Christopher Roush, and I'm this, and I have this, and I have this," you know. People were just like, "Okay, have you thought about that?" And just start pouring into one another. Then I would go check. You can see their profile linked to their social media. You go link to their social media and you find out they have like 10 billion followers. You know, there's wow, some, wow. there's some, you know, Tony Robbins type of guy. But they're not in there flashing their ego. They're not in there flashing their numbers. Like they're not in there offering a program. They're genuinely trying to help humanity get stronger. Interesting. And in, in these rooms, there would be 10 people, 60 people, 100 people. And not once, Scott, not once did anybody say, hey, before I help you, who did you vote for? Hey, before I help you, do you, what's your stance on abortion? Hey, before I help you, what's your stance on vaccines? Hey, before I help you, what color is your skin? No, everybody in that room, and if you look at the statistics, what studies say, 50% of us are divided. So you get a room of 20 people, 10 of us are one way and 10 of us are another. Chances are, if we're all friends, then most likely we'll be the same. But you take a random random sampling, you go to the grocery store and tell everybody stop. 50% yeah. of us are like, yeah, <laughs> you voted for Trump, you voted for Biden, socialist, and whatever. <laughs> but not in these rooms. Cool. Never, not once. So when I talk about faith, faith for me is each of us taking responsibility first for ourselves, our self-love, our self-care. People aren't doing that. I've given a uh, probably a hundred complimentary coaching calls over the last year, just as my way of giving back, just my way of saying, Hey, listen, if you're struggling, I want to help you. And that's why I got out of the personal development industry, because I found that a lot of people weren't really after that. And through these calls and Tony Robbins had said this a long time ago, is, when you've been doing this for a long enough time, you start seeing patterns. And for me, it was like, I didn't really expect that, but I was, I was asking these questions. It occurred to me to ask this question. And when I would hear people, I'm like, do you love yourself? Yes or no. And I would preface "I'm like you, the question I'm about to ans- ask you, I want you to answer as immediately as possible. And then we're on zoom so I can see their facial features. I'm like, do you love yourself? Absolutely. Yes or no. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, there's, there's the issue. Ladies and gentlemen in America, there's the <laughs> issue. If you don't love yourself, guess what? Start there. Start there. Do not start with yelling at everybody else. Start right here. Start giving yourself some self-love. Start start looking at what you're tolerating and stop tolerating some of that stuff and start taking that time and loving yourself. Hey, if you get anything out of this, get that. So once we establish if, if you don't love yourself, then you're expecting, you have these expectations out there that you want, I'm not loved. Well, you're not loving yourself. You're not putting yourself first. You're being a victim to everybody else around you. You're hoping, wishing, and praying that everybody's going to give you some significance and say, yeah, boy." They said, but if you're five, don't have your back. I reunited with my sister, Scott. She left when I was 16. No way. Oh, yeah. I want to bring another twist to the story. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah. So in 2005, <laughs> I think it was 2005, my sister left when I was 16. I was nine. She's seven years older than I am. And if you want to hear another fucked up story, ask me about how I got my name. That's another thing. <laughs> yeah, ask me how I got my name. Uh, I told you there's a lot of stories. So... Um, yeah. And I always wanted a family. I always wanted everybody else around me had family, had normal lives and, and, and all that stuff. But I had got to a point where I was successful and I was great. And I owned my house out in Riverside, my first one. And then this is when the Internet was getting big. I started getting these ads for people search. Find people you've been disconnected with. And of course, social media was coming out and everything like that. And so I went on people search. I remember this on AOL. I think it was AOL or something like that. And I typed in Maria Roush, Maria G. Roush, And Boom. Came up, and it was like nine ninety five to buy the records. I'm like,
1: I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna buy it. Guess where she lived? No, somewhere close. She lived less than a mile away from me. No way. I'm not kidding. Less than a
0: mile. Well, it might have been a mile. Literally, it was out of my street, Still over over a, a bridge, over a bridge, down a couple of blocks, and to the right.
1: Lord. Yeah.
0: That's so, cool. so, and I figured, you know, and my mom was successful at that point. She got out of the motel and bought a four-bedroom house in corona yeah she got a job you know she was normal for a little while so i was like okay this might be a good time you know kind of reunite the family you know we're all adults now it'd be kind of cool my sister hopefully has learned my mom's a little bit better place now um let's try this so i got in contact with her and i was surprised I was surprised because she'd been gone since she was 16. I remember when I said that her dad was normal and, and you know, educated right. and everything. Right. Um, this is when I really found out about genes. When I found out about not the jeans you we wear, but the jeans mm-hmm. and, you find, and I find, and I found out about victimhood and, and all these stories that we tell ourselves. And when I first met her, um, obviously I was surprised that she was older and she wasn't, hadn't taken care of herself as well as I remember her being when I was younger. So that was like the first sign. Um, she smoked which is not a problem. I think I spoke socially at that point, but as I got to know her, I found out she was exactly like my mom. Mm. She had developed the same personality down to the house full of cats, down to the house full of books, down to the same occupation, down to the same excuses why, why her life was fucked up and why everybody else is stupid. Psychological disorders, oh, all man. this other stuff. She turned out exactly like my mom. Exactly. And then she would apologize to me. She's like, "Oh, baby brother, I can't believe that you know you had to go through that with mom and being homeless and da 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 da." And then she would ask me, like, "So how did you turn out this way? How did you turn out this way?" I'm like, "I chose not to be like mom, and I did a lot of hard work. I read a lot of books. I went to therapy. I got coaches. I did a lot of self-examination on myself and realized that that isn't the person that I wanted to be. I have tendencies like her, of course." But I wanted to like people. I wanted to love people. I wanted to help people. I wanted to be a good parent. You know, at that point, I wasn't a parent yet. And it, it just it blew my absolute mind that she had a normal life, but yet she never let go. Never. She's still. Wow. And I got us back together. And uh, the sad part was, as I told both of them, listen, behave. Mm-mm. I'm the kid, right? I'm the kid. You two behave. Let's not talk about the past. Let's not blame each other, blah, blah. We're all grown. You have a house. You have a house. I have a house. Let's just try to be a normal family. And it kind of went on for a little bit. And then one night, I think it was Thanksgiving or something like that. I had Thanksgiving at my house and there was cocktails. And also my sister goes, we were, we were talking. We were talking. I was like, this is actually going pretty. This is actually going pretty good. And my wife was there. And then all of a sudden, um, my sister goes, well, you know, that was your fault, mom. And I was like, oh, Uh-oh. no. Uh-oh. And I immediately, said, blame game. I immediately said, I immediately said, I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going there. No, no. My house, my rules. No, 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 no. And then the conversation started getting like, you know, and I was like, oh, fuck, no. And then my sister started showing more of her signs. And unfortunately, I won't go into the rest of the story, but uh, ultimately I had to wish her well. And yeah. I tell people that and they're like, because they're like, you know, what if it's your family? You have to wish well. I'm like, let me tell you a story. Huh. So I did. I Many literally, that happens. she she got mad at me because I wouldn't give her a guitar. And I said, I'll lend you a guitar. I said, but I'm not going to give you a guitar. Oh, you were always this, da, 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 and just starts starts coming unglued on me about how special I was. I'm like, I was a baby. I had no choice that you had to take care of me. Why are you all mad at me? Why are you mad at me? Because I won't give you a guitar? What? Really? You're, that, you're still that type of person. You're still that 16-year-old girl who's all mad at the world, all pissed off because you didn't get what you wanted. I, I, have not, I have not spoken to her since. I wrote her a very nice email and said, I wish you all the best. Hmm. I said, but do not contact me anymore. Go live your life. And sometimes I feel sad about that in a way because now I have Jackson and she could be an aunt. But toxicity, that, that, that will not change. I'm, I'm pretty sure she's either dead or still the same person. I will almost guarantee it. And I, and I feel bad about it in a certain way, but when they say blood is thicker than water, that's BS. And going back to your faith, what started this is I have faith that people are inherently good. I have faith that if we can say the right things to the right people and listen to people more than tell people what to do, that we can start healing. So in clubhouse and seeing this, Nobody's ever done that. Nobody's ever asked any questions. I'm a part of a group called now Evolve Mastery with a guy named Princeton Clark. For me, just being me, raw and unscripted, swear, stupid shit falls out of my mouth sometimes. This guy was like, man, I need you to have a part of my team because you articulate. And so he's invited me. Normally I don't do any JVs like I was telling you before, but his, his passion and the people that he has on his team are genuinely interested in changing the world and really being that impact for both youth which I'm very very passionate about. That's how I got into speaking. You know that. Was going to speaking to youth. And like saying, hey, listen, if I went through this fucked up journey, so can you. you. You'll be all right. It's all about perspective. And that was one of the greatest gifts of my life also, was being able to go back to the school I dropped out of and speak to the 7th and 8th grade class That's actually cool. That's, yeah, actually, that's, that's actually very a, cool. That's actually a, a video on my YouTube channel. It's Where's like, your uh,
1: YouTube channel again? What is uh, it?
0: Well, it's YouTube. YouTube.com forward slash The Christopher Roush. Okay. Or it's on my, if you go to ChristopherRausch.com, there's a little YouTube thing. Just But, um, yeah, there's a a video on there called The 7th Grade Dropout Returns Home. How did you get your name? (laughs) (laughs) How did I get my name? Well, it was interesting. So, my mother's maiden name was Linda Mary Efting. So, as I said before, various psychological disorders. She changed her name, I think she said, 26 times before I was born. What? Yeah. Yeah. So, she settled on Meredith Samantha Blake as her name. She liked it because it was MSB, Ms. B, Ms. Blake. She's very big in the initials, very big in the initials. This is back in the old days where, you know, the, the professional people had the monograms and like my grandfather was RJ. He was always known as RJ, Raymond Joseph, Efting, RJ, hey, RJ. So she expected that I would be in business. So she wanted me to have cool initials. Well, in thinking about that, she's like, well, your sister's last name is Roush because her father's last name is Roush. And my mom was married to her sister's dad. Um, so they actually were a family for a while. Then they got divorced because he's like, you're not well, <laughs> you're not well. Uh, so in thinking about that, she's like, well, I wanted you and your sister to have the same last name. So I gave you the last name Roush. You know, if you guys were in school or when you guys are in school, that you guys would like be brother and sister. You'd be known as the same as opposed to you being Christopher or her being Maria Roush and you being, you know, Christopher Efting or Christopher Blake or whatever this might be. And so she says, OK, I'm going to name you Roush. And then she says, you know, then I really like the name Christopher. So I named you Christopher. And she goes, I didn't realize at the time, but she always claimed that she was Jewish. She goes, and I still really don't understand this to the fullest extent. But she goes, she goes, I was Jewish. And then I named you Chris, which is the son of Christ. And I said, OK, so I got I got the I got a name that didn't jive with how it is that you wanted. But you're the one that gave it to me. And then she threw it. She's like, OK, what would be a cool C.R. Well, C.R. is a cool thing. But how about. CBR. Okay. Well, CBR is a cool name. So I'll give you my last name as your middle name. So I'm Christopher Blake Roush. But here's the funny part. My biological father's real name is David Cross. So any of my siblings out there I haven't met, I'm sorry, but this is what's this is how you find out. It's either 23 and me or right now. But yeah, so my biological dad is named David Cross. I met him once when I was like two years old for a second because I think he came over to hammer on my mama or something. You know, so I just remember seeing the silhouette, and he looked like uh, basically like Sam Elliott. He was like had this long hair and the big bushy mustache kind of thing. Good looking guy. He was actually an actor. Um, but you've no, never met him. Never met him. So yeah, so I became Christopher Blake Roush, and then throughout the years, I was like, because of my sister, my sister's situation, like Roush. I, I'm not a Roush. I'm not that gene. I didn't really care about genealogy and all that other shit. Family trees, whatever, whatever. Burn the tree down. (laughs) I don't care about the tree. I'm going this way. But now as I've gotten older, it's kind of looking back. and like, so I signed My wife got me a 23 and me because she was really curious. She wanted, she wanted me to find my biological family. But I'm like, I don't want to go back and find my biological family. If they never knew that he was promiscuous, they don't know that I exist. And I don't want to become knocking on. And he's passed away. I found his birth. I got his birth certificate or death certificate. He passed away in 1993 from uh, stomach cancer that metastasized. Oh, died at the age of 57. Interestingly enough, my wife's dad died at 57 too. She had a psychic reading where his name came up in the psychic reading that her dad was present. So it was like they were chummy, chummy. I don't know. Weird Whoa, shit. Weird that, shit. That is some weird shit. Yeah, so Christopher Blake Roush. That's how I got my name. And I've toyed around with changing it over the years, but I'm like, it's a label. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. not who I am. Again, it's like the Gremlin. At first you see it and you're like, ah, that person is poor or has bad taste. But then the next time you see him, you're like, oh, you know, that's Scotty. You look past that. So your name, I think, is, is similar. There is stuff into a name where people can be judgmental, but the people are people after they know you then they know you and like my mom told me before uh you really know somebody if you know their heart yeah and so i've thought about that you know and then i kind of argue with it in my head sometimes and but you know i think it's kind of it is kind of true she has a point there so if you know somebody's intentions if you know somebody's and i think if you know their heart then you'll you'll at least have a good guess on what their intentions are you never can tell but i have had a lot of um, situations dealing with people well, where I knew their intent. I knew what they were trying to do, and I still was like, you know what? It's okay. Benefit of the doubt. Here, create this situation where they could take advantage. But they won't do that because eh, and I want to be nice, and I want to help people out. and Bam! <laughs> you know? But... It, and it's just it's a learning lesson now. Is it gonna stop me? No, because that's who I am. I do stupid shit I help people out and I, You know it. I don't have to I get to yes, and and that in my mind is an important Little difference of the words that you say that make a big impact. I don't have to I get to so perfect. And, and it just gives you that liberation where you're like, you know, so because if you ever feel like you're in a box, you're like, fuck this. I don't want to be in a box. I don't want to be stifled. I don't want to be stagnating. I don't you do not have control over me. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do and screw you if you think otherwise. And so it's not anyway. So by getting to you are not your own prisoner. You are your own savior, <laughs> so... Yes, sir. So, anyway... Um, to your
0: point about the gremlin, because you mentioned it a few times. Yes. What's that gremlin worth now? Oh, good point. See? Gremlin may be seen as something when it starts out, but over time, it ages, and now it becomes unique. So, now, in 1972, gremlin is worth a lot,
1: because it's good unique. Point. Um... Boom! for for <laughs> th- for those of p- for those of you, I'm not sure if we had the conversation. I think we had this conversation off camera, but we were talking about people judging, and basically, if somebody comes to your house and they pull up in a 1972 Gremlin. You're going to look out there for the first time and you're going to judge. You're going to say, well, that person is poor or that person has bad taste or that person has, I don't know, whatever, some kind of negative thing because let's face it, 1972 gremlins are not the most beautiful uh, (laughs) car out there. And so, but you get to know that person and then the next day they show up, you'll see the gremlin, but your judgments kind of fly away because it doesn't matter. And you say, oh, there's Scotty or whoever's driving. And that's and that's the point. So in a name and anything else, it matters at first for a second, but then it doesn't. So, you know, wh- whatever that's worth. If that's something, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. If not, whatever. <laughs> but is there... I think we've covered some pretty good ground, man. Quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. Just just the surface. Yeah. And I, th- I think we I think we set it up. I think we teed it up for another conversation down the road. Absolutely. As Anytime. Well.
0: Anytime. I would love to come back, man. It's been a great conversation with you, man.
1: Very cool. All right. Well, again, so you've mentioned where, so uh, Christopher Blake Roush or YouTube backslash The Christopher Roush.
0: YouTube.com The Christopher Roush or www.ChristopherRoush.com. Best place. Just go there. All the social media there. Connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, Clubhouse. What's your Instagram? Instagram is uh, at Christopher Roush. Okay. Sometimes I, sometimes I brand it. I've I've gotten kind of confused now because I've started branding No Excuses Coach. So, but yeah, Christopher, if you just Google Christopher Roush, I come up. Me and a doctor. Okay.
1: Perfect. Square He yeah,
0: Dr. Dr Christopher. Dr Gordon. <laughs> Dr Feel Good, I used to be called that. But I was dealing drugs. <laughs> Not Funny really, I'm I just I kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh now now you're dealing positivity. Oh yeah. Positivity from negativity. Possibility. I like sure. its it's spin, right? See positive and negative. But anyway, for all of you guys that tuned in, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And if you have a minute, go check out Christopher Rauch. He's got a unique style. He definitely has a unique story, as you've heard. And we can all glean insights from his experience. So again, thank you, Christopher Roush, for appearing on the show. You were good. We were I great. It.
0: I love it. No, it was a great conversation, man. You asked great questions, and I really appreciate being here.
1: Awesome. All right. Cool. Well, until the next time, all of you people in podcast land, see you later, alligator.